Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. It is Friday morning. It is March the 1st, end of the dumb month. A day longer for the dumb month, but it's been the rearview mirror. It's now, what is it, in like a lamb, out like a lion, or in like a lion, out like a lamb? Yeah, in like a lion, out like a lamb. I think it's coming in like a sponge uh, today. <laughs> Looks think, that way. I think a good chance of rain down at the beach. I look at the weekly weather forecast in, 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 in two separate ways. Monday through Thursday, I'm looking at the Florence and the Greater PD. Friday afternoon, Saturday, and Sunday, I'm looking at the Litchfield, Pauley's Island area, or as I like to say, Cleveland, Detroit, Cincinnati come south. <laughs> I don't think there's as much of a New Jersey influence uh, where I am. Um, I think the New Jersey influence is in North Myrtle Beach. I think the the Midwestern influence has made its way to um to hmm. the Litchfield, Pauley's Island um, area. Interesting. Yeah, I, you I, studied it. Well, I mean, I've not studied it. I've done kind of an unofficial survey on license plates, ah. you know, and the Tennessee. So, but this, I mean, I thought Tennessee was a cool place to live. Fast growing Southern state, dynamic Southern city, Nashville, Tennessee, you know, one of the fastest growing metropolitan areas in America. Why are you leaving Tennessee? I mean, I get leaving some of the Rust Belt. I mean, I understand, you know, big blue democratic led cities moving down South and, and praise God, they're bringing some, some red state beliefs with them. I think the um, I don't know if you saw this or not. I think there were seventy-seven thousand Republican votes cast in Horry County. <laughs> I mean, I'm laughing like how that can't be possible. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, like seventy-seven thousand. <laughs> that's, that's pretty pretty big. That's isn't an it? absurd number. I mean, you know, I think Trump wins eighty percent of the vote, but I mean, seventy some odd thousand Republican votes cast in Horry County. I mean, that's just crazy. I'd like to go back and look and see what the number was in 2010 uh, when I ran. I want to begin the show by thanking the Dillon County Republican Party. They reached out. Uh, a buddy of mine goes to the gym, uh, asked me a couple of weeks back would I be interested in come over to, to speak. I said, yeah, big crowd, big, hardworking, conservative crowd. Uh, I, I don't do much of that, but I do some. I got home and told my wife, if I could do that under my terms and conditions, and by that I mean running for office, it's required, Josh. I mean, you've got a, a morning speech. you got a noon speech. you got an evening speech. You meet somebody at, a, at, a, at a, a rented office from 2 to 4 to make phone calls, fundraising phone calls. I mean, it's not bright lights and glamour and glitz. I mean, Trump does it in style. He pulls up at a rally <laughs> in his own personal jet. I didn't do that. I mean, it was... um. Hey, I got a friend who has an office in Greenville. He said he'd let us meet in his boardroom for two hours and make phone calls. So the fundraising coordinator meets you in the city. You're giving a uh, a breakfast speech and a noon, you know, kind of a lunch speech. Um, and in politics, Rev, it's kind of interesting. And I'll have to do a little bit of that this week. A uh, good listener to the show and friend of ours invited me to speak at the Rotarians. I'm come Monday. And I think I can be political. I just don't think I can be partisan. Well, last night I was partisan. <laughs> I'm well, speaking to Dillon to County Republican yeah. Party. I mean, I'm as partisan as you That's could imagine. different than talking to the Rotary. Well, I mean, with the Rotarians, I mean, you're not there to try to influence and, and, and fan the flames of, you know, the Republican brand and convince everybody that our way is the best way. Sometimes you got to be careful about forgetting to change the channel. <laughs> you know, your mind gets ingrained to this way of thinking and this way of, of delivering the speech. And last night, I spent a lot of time thinking about a message that would resonate with Rotarians, but not be partisan. 
that there's a little bit of me that says knock the door off the hinges. You know what I mean? Pull my, my, my six shooters out of my pocket and say, Hey, you ask a guy like me to come, you know what you're going to get. So here we go. I mean, why do they jump me? You know, uh, 10 minutes into the speech, he's breaking the rules. Uh, but I want to be respectful and I have no interest in insulting anybody anywhere, but thank you to Dillon County and the Republican party. And I just thank you for letting me come last night and share my opinions on several things. Thank you for the work you're doing in a place that historically has not supported Republicans that now is, I mean, that there's this movement afoot. And I said this yesterday, Reb, and I'll stand by this comment. And we talked a little bit about it um, last night. If I'm a rural Democrat, in other words, if the majority of my district is rural and I'm running as a Democrat, I am, I am solely focused on the VBAP, the black voting age population. I mean, that, that's my most loyal voter because the, the rural white voter has made a, just a complete and total exodus from the Re- Democrat Party into um, the Republican Party. It's kind of an interesting uh, factoid that I found early this morning. Someone sent it to me a week or so ago. I didn't have a t- chance to open it up and read it in detail. But from the Federal Election Commission, and this kind of plays into what, what we talked a little bit about yesterday, from the Federal Election Commission, they, I mean, you list your job, your occupation. You make a contribution to a political candidate. You declare your occupation. Um, this is as a percentage of, in other words, of the professors that made political donations, Joe Biden got a higher percentage than any other profession. 96 percent of professors who made political contributions made it to the Democrat, you know, in whatever seat they're running for. Um, second, you ready? Psychologist. 91% of psychologists who made political contributions made those contributions to Democrats. Third, social workers. 91% of those that made contributions. Uh, fourth, scientists. Fifth, writers. I mean, they're all about 90% or higher. So professors are 93%. Psychologists, social workers, scientists, and writers are over 90%. Give me a guess, Josh and Rev. I mean, I've got four occupations here. But the highest percentage of these workers in this particular job gave to Donald Trump and the Republicans. What would be, I mean, just give, I mean, I got five here. Just give me, I mean, guess one of the five, Rev. Um, I'm going to say 7%. No, give, give me the job. Give me the name of the job. Oh, the, 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 I, I yeah. thought you were saying, okay. Um, in other words, who are the it, professors for the Democrats? I mean, for the Republicans. It's hard to pick. I mean, how can Just you give me a wild guess? I mean, what, what, what job out there that made contributions to political campaigns do you believe at a real, real high percentage made that political contribution to someone running as a Republican. 93% of all the donations made by, by professors were made to Democrats. Oh, I see. I guess what oh. I'm asking is, who are the professors on the other side? I mean, we know they're not professors, but in what line of work are they in? When they fill out this Federal Election Commission oh, form. I, yeah. well, I, I misunderstood your Okay, question. my bad. I probably didn't explain yep. it well. Uh, I'd imagine entrepreneurial types, maybe like Vivek, you know, like... M- but Medicine company CEOs. Okay, you're talking about CEOs. 
Yeah. Is that fair, Rev? Yeah. Um, I, I just, it's hard to, I mean, how do you classify, you know, your, your work or your, your, you know, your factory worker? Well, you nailed it. Oh, it's okay. number one, construction worker. Okay. Okay. Number two, mechanic. Number three, entrepreneur. They- number four, um, truckers. Number five, farmers. I mean, that's quite the contrast. Mm-hmm. I mean, we talk about black and white. We talk about these, these, um, and I'm always trying to analyze what the data says. I mean, is there, is there something Robert, as good as Robert is at the, the analyzing of the data, you know what Robert sucks at? And he'll tell you the instinct. I mean, the gut says X. That's why Robert calls me occasionally. I call Robert and reach out to Robert more than he does me. But when Robert reaches out to me, I mean, I've told you before, it's normally you got time for a, for a, for a call. Yeah. Um, Hey, I'm polled. I'm polled in Florida, and here's what here's what some of the polling says. And I and I, I don't I don't I don't understand this. I mean, you you, you know you talk to people every day. You, you tell me tell me you know where I'm headed. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, 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 does your gut and instinct confirm what the polling data says? I'm a little. What Robert is basically saying is, I've done this poll. I've gathered this data. I'm suspicious of how accurate it is, and I need somebody to tell me. <laughs> and he wants to figure out the why. So your gut can tell you Correct. what's going on. What's the underlying you know, reason and, and that's for his numbers? Still, and, and I talked a little bit last night, and we touched on this on the radio show. If you're trying to understand America first, why do you go to Princeton? I mean, an interview, you know, a book written by two people who work at the Washington Post on the Trump phenomenon and what it means in American politics. Where did it, where did it derive from? Where does it go from here? I mean, don't talk to professors and psychologists and social workers and, and scientists and writers. Go talk to some construction workers. Go talk to some entrepreneurs and mechanics and truckers and, and farmers. I mean, they can tell you exactly why they feel disenfranchised. They can tell you. Now, now some of these, and I think this is where you get some overlap. There are a lot of construction workers, mechanics, entrepreneurs, tractors, farmers who are ideologically driven. I mean, it, when you say farmer, oh, that's blue collar, that's salt of the earth. I mean, those guys don't read the National Review or Wall Street Journal. Some do. I mean, I think it's a misnomer to believe that these folks are just totally not informed. Therefore, they're making an opinion based on some, you know, entertainment guy running for president. I just think it, it, it's bizarre to me. And as long as they do this, we're in a better place. As long as they hire reporters from the Washington Post to write an essay or a book by Simon & Schuster, I mean, I saw this, somebody recommended a book to me, and I'm like, I don't want to read that book. I mean, there's nothing in that book educational for me. What do you mean? These are two esteemed writers. I mean, this one guy's been to the Washington Post 40 years. This other reporter worked at the New York Times for 27 years. I mean, one went to Harvard. One went to University of Missouri Journalism School. I'm like, yeah, but none none of those people know construction workers. (laughs) They don't know mechanics. They don't know farmers. They don't know truck drivers. So we've got this... This, this divide, this kind of a line of demarcation in our political system today. And, I mean, historically it's been white and black and conservative and liberal and incomes have separated to some degree. But the, the divide today is really along employment. I mean, it really and truly is. Uh, if you are a professor or psychologist or social worker, there's a pretty good chance. No, there's a real good chance that you're a Democrat. If you're a construction worker, mechanic, or truck driver, entrepreneur, there's a real good chance you are a 
Republican, and I don't know about you, with all due respect to our good friend, Dr. Will Bolt, I'd rather be on the team with construction workers, mechanics, entrepreneurs, truckers, and farmers than I had the team of professors, psychologists, social workers, scientists, and writers. No, no slide at any profession. I just, I mean, if, if I want to get on one team or another, I mean, if we're having a draft and the professor is drafting and the construction worker drafting is captain of their teams, I'm going to kind of ease toward the, um, the old construction way side. 843-661-0937 is our number. Takes Mondays um, to make Fridays. I think uh, the delegation will be here. If I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, Lieutenant Governor Pamela Evett is scheduled to um, to call in at about 9.05 today. Um, she reached out and said, hey, I'd like to talk to your audience once a month. And uh, and we set up, I think, a first, first Friday, Friday of every month. Um, it's normally not the first day of the month, but it happens to be this week. I want to go down. I mean, I, I read a good bit yesterday afternoon about. Um, and it's Friday, by the way. Yeah. Russell Fry calling. You're right. So so we've got a um, a star-studded lineup. F-R-Y-D-A-Y. Yeah. That's around 7.30. Um, there's a little scuttlebutt and that, that I'll, I'll leave unsaid until I get permission to um, share with our listening audience. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. We had a show yesterday, Hypothetical Thursday. We played out a lot of hypotheticals. Um, one of the hypotheticals was Blake and Riley and the situation in Georgia we balanced morals and ethics and what's fair, what's not fair because the other party does it. Should we return fire in favor? Josh offered up an interesting hypothetical to me this morning. And I want to ask Josh if he'll kind of, I mean, since we hypothesize on this show, uh, very little of what we do is fact-based and real world. It's all <laughs> hypothesizing. Uh, we're, we're, we're the Republicans who are enamored with the professors and the psychologists and the writers, um, it's kind of wild, but, but I really enjoy playing out these weird scenarios. Buddy of mine said yesterday, that's kind of an interesting, I mean, I know it's crazy and it's far fetched and extreme, but it's interesting when you say that if somebody were to come into the oval office and the president shoots them with a gun, law enforcement is not the first issue he has. I mean, he's the president of the United States. Are we almost suggesting that the president, Josh, is superhuman and the rules that apply to everybody else in the world don't apply to him. I mean, in a weird way, has the Constitution exempted the president of the United States from the laws of the very land he governs over? Uh, I know. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. 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 I mean, he's a superhuman. Yeah, I mean, pretty he's, much. He's not looked at like everybody else in the world or everybody else in America. We don't make laws for the rest of the world. Huh? Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. <laughs> you kind of do. And if they don't do it, we cut off funding. <laughs> if they behave and do what we tell them to do, then we'll keep sending money and NATO will help and all these other good things. But if you don't do exactly what we say do, then NATO doesn't help and we don't help. And you just find out the hard way that you live in the American century and the American empire is the dominant force in the American century, back to the hypothetical. So, so Josh offered up an interesting hypothetical. I mean, that's about as extreme as I can get. I mean, if, if, if a Republican goes into the Oval Office to debate a policy position with the president and the president gets so worked up that he pulls the gun and shoots 
you know, let's say, you know, let's say Steve Daines becomes minority leader. That's kind of my pick right now. Um, Steve Daines pulls, I mean, he pulls the gun, shoots and kills Steve Dane. Capital City Police don't come storming the room. I would imagine EMS comes in, and I would imagine, I mean, they don't have to let the body lay there while we're figuring out how much immunity or not and impeachment or not. I mean, I would imagine they respond to the victim, as we traditionally do. But but the, the point we're trying to make is, per the Constitution, law enforcement does not put handcuffs on Joe Biden. Well, they call this the House, and they do an investigation, and they, they, they say, yes, he shot and killed him. It goes to the Senate. There's a conviction. Uh, and then I offered up the proposal, if we believe the Democrats will do whatever, would they really convict someone? I mean, after all, he killed a Republican. <laughs> well, he killed one of the bad guys, right? <laughs> I mean, Cowboys and Indians, when I grew up, killed one of the Cowboys and one of the Indians. So um, so anyway, that's the most extreme hypothetical I can offer up. And, I mean, it, it is an academic exercise, but I find it to be a bit interesting. Josh offered up one. I mean, it's less about the Constitution. It's not about immunity, but it does go to the moral ethics we talked about yesterday. How willing are we to make Lake and Riley a part of the Georgia presidential election. I mean, that's in theory kind of what we debated yesterday, right? I mean, we all had, we all, I think, agreed, yes, make her a part of the campaign. I don't think we ever said, but let's stop here. I mean, let's not go there. Let's make sure that her life is respected, her family's privacy is somewhat respected. Let's at least go to the family and tell them kind of what our plan is. And if they bless some of this and not others, then we got a, a real tough call to make. I mean, if we've got a very provocative ad and it blames the Democrat sanctuary city and open border policy for allowing this, this tragedy to take place, and the family says, look, man, we're comfortable with that, not with this, I mean, then somebody's got to make a decision. That, that's where we were talking about politics meets moral and ethics. Because I don't think politics can exist without some degree of moral and ethics. I know some believe that, but I don't. I mean, I think whatever in whatever political situation or circumstance, there's got to be some degree of consideration of morals and, and ethics. So Josh offered up one, not about immunity, but it is about open borders. I mean, it is about, you know, the government. It is about you as a representative of the government making a decision about what to do or not to do. Josh, offer up that hypothetical because it's very interesting um, because option A is tragic. And option B is tragic, correct? Right. I mean, if both scenarios involve a tragedy. So, so I, I don't. You just kind of, kind of tell me, tell our listeners what you discussed with me this morning. Right. So I asked you uh, before the show started, what would you do in this situation where you have this opportunity? You're you're an official. You have the power to do this. There's this family cr- about to cross the border, or you know, a mother and her child about to cross the border into America and you, by law, you, you have to turn them away or you can let them in. And you know that like the, the route they came on was extreme, extremely long. They're, they're clearly like dehydrated. They need food, but you have to turn them away. And they're probably going to die if they have to make the trail back to Mexico, wherever they came from. Or you have this situation where you can let them in and you just kind of let everyone in because you don't want them to be turned away and die, but it results in the, uh, uh, this young girl dying. So in this situation, one person is going to die. Who do you pick? 
And it's not, well, this may or may not happen. It is like one of them is going to die, and you have to choose. Who do you choose? Well, I mean, I choose. I mean, it's, it's not easy. I mean, I'm going to answer it like it's easy, but it's certainly not easy. I choose the American. I mean, I choose the yeah. law. I mean, I choose, you know, Lake and Riley, as far as I know, broke no law. I mean, she's a University of Georgia student jogging around Athens. I mean, I understand the point you're making, and, and it would be real hard to look a, a mother and her child in the eyes and say, you got to turn around and go back. What do you mean I got to turn around and go back? I can't swim back across there. I mean, there's no way. I had my daughter in one hand kind of paddling with the other. I mean, there's no way. There are drug lords. I mean, there are cartels behind me. I'm not sure I can make it across the river, and if I do, they're going to butcher me and my kid. And you've got to make it, but, 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 but to Josh's point, You've already, I mean, there's a known ending to this. And if they are to make it across the border, Lincoln Riley loses her life. That That's, I mean, that's a complex moral dilemma. But to some degree, isn't that where we are? I mean, I'm not saying the mother and child are coming here to kill someone. But we know now, despite what the mayor of Athens says, there is a correlation between illegal immigration and this is a, I mean, th- this is a, an empty argument the Democrats are making. Well, legals kill people. You know, we have, I mean, every murder in America, every violent crime in America is not committed by an illegal alien. Well, okay, they're, they're not. But to some degree, and this is so crazy, that we're not agreeing, because we're not. I mean, we're not agreeing that the word illegal means illegal. I mean, we, we've kind of skipped past that, and now we're talking about the percentage of crimes in a city committed by illegal aliens compared to the percentage of residents who are illegal aliens. I don't know how you defend that. I just don't know any sane person. I said last night in Dillon that there's been an historic debate, and I think it's a just debate, liberal and conservative. The fundamental role of government, there's a sliding scale. I mean, at times in my life, I'm a libertarian anarchist. At other times in my life, you could probably accuse me of being socialist. I mean, when I'm begging the state or city for historic tax credits, I mean, I am as complex and complicated and conflicted and, and hypocritical as they come. But, but my, my DNA says less government is better government. But, but I don't want to insult anybody that says otherwise. I mean, I think there's a fair debate to be had on the sliding scale of government, where does it stop? It stops at a it stops at a shorter place for me than it lot does a lot of others. But I think there's legitimacy to that debate. There is no legitimacy to what's happening on our southern border. I mean, it, it, how could a sane person believe that that's okay? Combine that insanity with the reality, and I talked a little bit about this last night of the mass exodus from blue cities to red states. And I mean, you got to be a moron to not believe that's why Democrats are doing this. I mean, if 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 New York State losing a million people causes them to lose two, you know, electoral college votes, and they are figuring out a way to count illegal aliens as New Yorkers, then that's I mean that that's their grand strategy. It's still about political power, and, and that goes back to the fundamental argument we had yesterday or debate we had yesterday. They'll do anything. I mean, the Democrats will do anything. They will allow a mass invasion of our country to end up in sanctuary cities to make up for the loss of population from people who don't like high taxes and high crime to move to red states. 
I mean, if, if you don't believe the Democrats will do anything to hold on to political power, look at the southern border. I mean, that, that is why we're experiencing this. Now, they're not going to run out and say, hey, the reason we're not securing the border is we're losing a lot of voters in some of these blue states, and the Republicans will have an electoral college advantage by the 2030 census. I mean, they're not going to stand out and say, hey, yeah, that's what we're doing. But that's what they're doing. That's exactly what they're doing, and they're going to try to figure out a way to get those illegals counted <laughs> to, to offset the number of law-abiding you know, um, American citizens that are deciding they don't like living in crime-infested, high-tax blue cities. Take a break. Back in a few. Text Mondays to make Fridays, 843-661-0937. How many degrees of separation are there between Joe Biden getting elected, changing some of the immigration policy of the former administration, and Lakin Riley being tragically killed as a University of Georgia student? Is it one degree of separation? Is it 100 degrees of separation? How do you get from Biden revoking the majority of decisions Trump and his administration made about securing the border to a girl in Georgia tragically losing her life, maybe as a result of a degree of separation, maybe a result of 20 degrees of separation. Let's go to the phone. Larry in the PD, good morning. Morning, guys. Um, Three things I I, want to try to hit, then I'll get off the phone. Um, If Joe Biden goes and robs a bank and he puts a bag out and says, hey, put 10% in here for the big guy. Joe Biden goes to jail because the president didn't rob a bank. Joe Biden did. Now, if the president says drop a bomb on Afghanistan and 700 people are killed, the president doesn't go to jail for murder, right? So if, if, if you, there is a difference, he's not superhuman in all aspects. And if he were to shoot somebody in the Oval Office over a policy dispute, Joe Biden shot him not the president, because physical force is not a requirement for the government to run. So I think he should be arrested, regardless of who he was, and he should be tried. And uh, they've got a clause in there for what happens when the president is incapacitated. And if he's in jail, you might say he's incapacitated and somebody else has to take over. That's number one. Number two, in your scenario with um, either this lady dies or that lady dies, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that the Democrats have been handing us a line for my entire life. Every time they want us to pass a ridiculous law that takes away somebody's freedom, and this is what they say: if just one child can be saved, right? That's their that's their own metric. You can pass whatever law you want if it saves just one life. So they're not they never were talking about. Mexicans' lives. We're not. The president isn't sworn to uphold and protect Mexican sovereignty, United States sovereignty. So that's an easy choice. And as you and I both know, if you turn them away at the border, they do eventually quit coming. If everybody gets turned away every time, why would you come? No one would. They'd go back to being like really sneaky. But nobody's just going to come knock on the front door and say, "Let me in." So I, I don't think we have a responsibility. As agents of a government, now as human beings, you know, go down there, go to the border and, you know, have a raft service that takes them back across the river so that they don't drown, whatever. So, so, but, so Larry, uh, let, let me stop you there because I'd be very interested. How humane should our government be? Well, clarity 
is humaneness. And right now we're not humane at all because we're not clear about what we stand for. We're not clear about our laws. We don't do what we say we're going to do. So we're very inhumane. If you think the idea of being humane is because someone makes a horrible decision that puts their life at risk, it's incumbent on us to take away the outcome of their bad decision. Well, I don't call that being humane because you only encourage more people to take the same risk. That's not humane at all. There is an end to the problem if you stop the influx. There's an end. And then the only other thing I wanted to say is that the arc of the Democrat discovery is always this. We are not doing that. You're crazy. Well, yeah, we're doing that, but it's not as widespread as you say it is. Okay, look, we're doing it everywhere, and it's a good thing to, you know what? We want to mandate this thing that we just said six weeks ago we're not even doing. <laughs> Thank you, Larry. You appreciate that. Larry had some pent-up demand there. I mean, he had a lot of things he wanted to get off. Off his chest, always well-spoken, always insightful. One of the really good callers that we've had for years and years and years on this show. Um, I, I think he nails it there. The most inhumane we can, the most inhumane thing our government can do is to not offer absolute clarity on what happens if you try to make that pilgrimage to our southern border, make your way into our country illegally. It doesn't work. I mean, it, you, you're not allowed to come into this country and here's what happens if you try. I think Larry nails that. I mean, it is so inhumane. The hope we're offering to people from other places. I mean, maybe, maybe there's political asylum. Maybe they're. I mean, maybe they're seeking a better way of life. Maybe they're trying to come here to start a business, pick strawberries, work on a farm, become a PhD. I don't have any idea, but I do agree with Larry that the most inhumane thing we're doing is to be squishy about what may or may not happen mm-hmm. if you make that complicated Nailed. pilgrimage so, so well to, to get here. Um, that's our responsibility. And, and we're the most developed nation on the planet. And if we can't create clarity on something that simple, illegal means illegal. I mean, just think of that, guys. I mean, it's, it's a little bit like Bill Clinton. It depends on what the definition of is is. I mean, we're basically, without saying it, we're, we're, we're arguing, arguing from a perspective of, well, I mean, it, it really means what the definition of illegal is. Well, I mean, let's go to De- let's go to Webster. I mean, it's pretty it's pretty easy for me to understand what the word illegal means. But now we've got all this ambiguity oh, around. And what are they being told? They're told you get there if you can get into the country. They'll give you money. They'll give you you know health care. Sure. I mean, well, I mean, they're not just told that. We do that. I mean, I we, we actually do that. And that is inhumane. It, it, it's, it's bizarre. And I don't know how sane people stand for that. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville, good morning. Yeah, I thought for a minute Larry was going to take my analogy. You know, I'm a pretty simple man, so I try to put things in simple terms. It's, the border is like a bank. If you go to the bank to rob it, which one do you go to? The one that's got lots of money, no guards? And you can go in and get get the money, or you go to one that just shut down, that's bankrupt. Nobody's there, no money. Why would you break in and try to get the money? So if we make the border like a bankrupt bank, they won't come. They won't make that ten thousand mile trip or whatever they're making to come, knowing they won't be able to get in. But you know, we were talking yesterday, and, and I figured it out. Because I think a lot about what people say. And the problem is 
freedom and liberty. That's hard. People don't like hard things, and they're going to take the the path of least resistance. So they're going to do whatever's easiest for them. But we were, men was made to be free and happy. So whatever (laughs) makes you free and happy is, is one person's, dependence on the government and everybody else so we have to overcome that y'all y'all have a good one i won't take up much of your time thank you joe i've always looked at it this way i have a right to say what i believe over these airways i think i have a responsibility to understand what it is i'm standing for and what i'm what i'm speaking about i mean once again the constitution gives me the right to say certain things over these airways. The FCC says there's some things I can't say. Fair enough. I mean, I can't say certain profane words. I can't, I, I don't think personally insult, but there's slander and defamation laws that come into play if you do some of that. So there's kind of a, um, I mean, that, that we, we use the word guardrail a lot. I mean, that, there's that guardrail there that says you're right. You've got a, you've got, I mean, the Constitution, the First Amendment gives you a right to free speech. I've taken it upon myself. I mean, there's nothing about the Constitution, the First Amendment that says, yeah, and you got to be responsible for it, too. I think freedom's a little bit like that. I think freedom is a right. Liberty is a right. But a nation has a responsibility to fight for it, to understand it, and not accept it as just a given. I mean, things will be taken away from you. If you think you have a right to be free, but you don't have a responsibility to understand that right, I mean, it's easier to take it away. I mean, the Rev has a right to be free, but he doesn't have a, an understanding of what that where that right is derived from. It's easy to take that. But if Rev has a right to be free combined with the responsibility he's taken to understand that right, and I just think that's where we are as a country. We've accepted all of these rights as kind of inalienable. And, 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 you know, yeah, okay, fair enough. I mean, they're God-granted. Despite what Politico says, despite what MSNB says, they're God-given. But I do think that the second sentence is not a requirement via the Constitution or First Amendment, but I think along with that comes a responsibility that we as human beings have to understand the uniqueness of, of being an American. Take a break. Back in just a couple of minutes. Takes Mondays to make Fridays, 843-661-0937. Someone's on the phone, got a couple of minutes. Let's go there. Breeze, good morning. I think every president upon all but he finishes his term to check right into the federal prison for five years. Every last one of them. <laughs> or at the very least, he ought to go to a monastery and pray God for five years for forgiveness of all of his sins. You know, when Daggle Linda Johnson sent all these guys over to Vietnam, you know, for a war, Daggle had increased the military industrial complex. And these guys took over there and make them, you know, get their 18, 19 year old kids scared to death. And they screw her up and killed the wrong person. That guy went to jail. I'm Linda Johnson. So there goes your inequity right there. And uh, I think that ought to be on a T-shirt, though, that whole cloth. Clarity is on humane. But another thing, kid, if you, if you, I know you probably have, but have you been watching how Tucker Carlson has been exposing what the Chinese government and what whatever has been doing? To basically destroy and subvert the whole country, everything from, of course, you know about the fentanyl, but actually sending um, arms to uh, 
of criminals here in America. I mean, literally, I think they were shipping them. And then they're opening up uh, tool, you know, these places in Mexico to make them and send them back over. And then uh, the other things they're doing to try to um, just undermine everything that um, we stay. I mean, these guys are at war with us. And very, all we talk about is the Russians. We, you know, and it seems like that. I said this more. It seems like my whole life has always been about the Russians, and it's like we don't think the Chinese are capable of destroying us, but they have done a hell of a lot better job of destroying this country by buying off our politicians and our and, and our, our corporations and everything else than the Russians ever have done. And I can't, for the life of me, understand why. Nobody talks about it. Where I mean, I don't even hear any of the, of the U.S. senators or House members. The Chinese, man, I'm telling you guys, that the stuff they're doing, you can write an entire book on everything they're doing to us, and you nobody know, seems to give a damn. I just wonder what you're, what you think. About Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. What what Tucker's arguing basically is. The people of Russia are decent. The people of China are decent. The people of America are decent. It's the governments that are evil. I mean, the governments are not interested in the well-being of China or Russia or America, for that matter. And Tucker basically says, forget the Russians and Chinese. Your government is your biggest foe. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Tucker is an interesting political media figure today. Probably the most interesting in America, and I'm listening to some of the things he says. Tucker is a highly intelligent political news figure. I mean, he goes back in the day. I mean, he worked at the Weekly Standard. He obviously worked at Fox News. He would be more intellectual and academic than most conservatives. He is a, I mean, he's kind of leading the charge of the converts. I mean, I guess that's the kindred spirit I have with Tucker. I mean, I, I was, I bought into what Breeze was talking about. The Russians are bad and, you know, we're all good and they're all bad. And I'm um, Tucker's basically saying I should be ashamed that I bought into that. Um, it's not the Russian people. It's not the Chinese people. It's these governments that pit themselves one against the other and try to convince the masses that the other masses are the problem and they're bad and they're evil and wicked. And when Tucker says, I went to Russia, and I met many good and decent Russians. I mean, that's contrary to what Breeze and I were told. I mean, I, Breeze is my age. He may be uh, six months or so older. But, I mean, we grew up in the same era. I told Rev, and I don't want to get into psychoanalysis because I'm not capable of that, but I do it anyway. Um, it seems to me that Tucker is more burdened by that. And he wants to be liberated, Rev, from that. In hmm. other words, I have been a thought leader. I have written many articles defending the neoconservatives. I have written many articles talking about the American empire. I never called it the American empire, but in my heart, I knew, I knew what I was writing about. I mean, I knew I was writing about an empire that was provoking war and trying to control the war and trying to be, you know, NATO on the march and America's uh, encouragement. And I think Tucker being more informed than most about what has happened to get us here I think he's more regretful than most, and I think he's burdened. I mean, I really believe this, and I think at times he goes a little overboard in expressing ah, his conversion because I think his conversion has created a burden, and, and I think Tucker believes in a weird way 
in the craziest way imaginable that he's partially responsible for some people getting killed. Mm. I mean, you're talking about, you know, the degrees of separation. Well, obviously, there's a, there's a lot of degrees of separation from writing a neoconservative article, the Weekly Standard, that defends going to Iraq and, and someone actually getting killed, you know, by, by some fanatical Islamist. I mean, I'm not saying Tucker. I mean, we, we talked about degrees of separation between, you know, the presidency and what happens on our, on our southern border. I mean, I think the president is a lot more responsible what's happening on our southern border than Tucker Carlson is, some kid dying in Iraq who we had no business there. But I think Tucker's regretful, and I think he's remorseful, and I think he's burdened by being one of the intelligent conservatives that wrote and spoke about neoconservatism, and now he's had a conversion. And I think he wants the world to know that, that yeah, I did it, and I'm wrong, and I regret it. But I'm going to be liberated. It's a little bit like if someone gets diagnosed with cancer and you tell them they got a year to live, some want to go make right some of the wrongs in their life. Some want to go to Josh and Dave and say, hey, man, remember 20 years ago we went at it? I mean, we had a business deal go south. We had a misunderstanding. We had a big argument. You hadn't spoken to me and I hadn't spoken to you. I want to, I want to try. I want to try to extend an olive branch and offer my apologies. I don't know that I was fully responsible, but I ain't going to my grave you know, with you mad with me. I, I can't I can't make you not be mad with me, but I'm going to make it. And I think Tucker, in a weird way, in a weird hmm. way, I think he's struggling with some of that. People care what Tucker says. I mean, that, that's a burden. I mean, that, you know. Yeah, I'm interested to, th- to ask why you think that. Is it the subject he's talking about? Yes, and, and, and yes, and he's so aggressive in contradicting everything he ever believed. It's not just it's that such he a says, contrast from yeah, it's not that he where says, he came from. Hey, you know where I come from? And I'm admitting I was wrong. I mean, that, a lot of people do a mea culpa, right? I mean, I, I think the good, decent, moral people in the world do a mea. When you know you're wrong and you've made a mistake, you own it. I mean, I, I can relate to that. All of us can relate to that. That's not good enough for Tucker. He's not just owning it. He's going to lead the charge to overthrow those <laughs> or the mindset or ideology that he put so much faith in all of these years. I think he's burdened by that. And I think he's committed to this America first agenda that is far more non-interventionist than the majority of his career has been about. I mean, once again, I'm psychoanalyzing from afar, but, but he, he just doesn't do a mea culpa. I mean, he, he's admitted I, I was reckless. I was careless, I was irresponsible, and people cared what I said. But then he goes that next step, and here's the ones that did it, and here's what they did, and here's what happened, here's what's got to happen over the next 10 or 15 years to have a generational shift away from all this killing and war and, and you know, military-industrial complex-driven agenda. Let's go to the phone. Verd in Marlboro County, good morning. Good morning, Ken. I had to miss you last night in Dillon. I uh, need to get you back in Marlboro probably in April. If we can work that out. Yeah, just kind of, I mean, you've got my number. Get with me and we'll make a, we'll get it on the schedule. Okay. Uh, Nikki Haley, uh, you know, she's continuing to throw up that false uh, narrative that uh, she got 40% of the vote here and 30 here. And that's showing the weakness of uh, President Trump. You know, the the weakness is uh, the fact that she hadn't even come close to winning any primary. But, um, uh, in, in Michigan, uh, I think CNN did an excellent poll that showed that 
fifty percent of the forty percent she got was Democrat. So, you know, she's she's not being truthful with the American people that uh, that she's getting forty percent of the Republican vote because it's it's just not true. And she is much weak. She is much weaker than the than the, than the numbers actually show. But anyway, I just wanted to throw that in there. You know, she continues to say that because she got 40 percent, that uh, that shows the weakness of Donald Trump, that 40 percent of Republicans are for her, whether or not. About 20 percent might be for her. But, maybe uh, 25. Maybe 25. But she's, uh, she's a very weak candidate. And, and, of course, I think yesterday Trump uh, campaign announced that they're no longer going to even talk about her because they they pretty much now, now know she's very irrelevant and uh if she, if they talk about her, then that gives her a little bit more audience. So I think they have made the decision that they not, no longer going to even mention Nikki Haley. Thank you, Verd. Appreciate it. What do you think about it in New Hampshire? Well, let's go all the way back to Iowa. I mean, the caucus is different, but New Hampshire would be the best example. In South Carolina, for that matter, you got open primaries. The Democrats had nothing to do, so they vote for I mean, the never Trumpers and Democrats vote for Haley. In, in New Hampshire, the never-Trumpers and Democrats vote for Haley in, in South Carolina. Um, and I think it's fair to say that everybody doesn't support Trump. I mean, they never have. They never will. No candidate gets unanimous support of a political party. I mean, they, you know, campaigns are, are tough and nasty at times, and there's these feelings get hurt, and sometimes you're able to put Humpty Dumpty back together again, and sometimes you aren't. You do the best you can. And that's party leadership and trying to get, you know, hey, can we make amends? Can we move forward from here? I mean, I've heard stories. Big Pen was on the convention floor when Reagan chose H.W. Bush. And Big Pen tells that story. There was a lot of arm twisting. I mean, there was a lot of, um, you know, loud conversations, shouting at one another, you know, no way I'm doing that and no way I'm doing this. And, I mean, you know, at some point in time, a deal's made and you move forward. Nikki is is just being dishonest when she says that 40% of the Republican electorate don't support Donald Trump. That's not true. And, and the first state that Republicans and Democrats had something to do at the same time, on the same day, Nikki got beat by 42 points. I mean, Trump got roughly 70% of the vote. Nikki got roughly, well, less than 30%, about 28% of the vote. That's kind of where it is in the Republican Party. 70% of Republicans want Donald Trump as the nominee. 30% would rather have somebody else. Of the 30%, what percentage of those under no circumstance would vote for Donald Trump? I got a real sophisticated answer. You ready? Oh, no. I mean, I can speculate, and I have speculated. I think it's half of 30 or half of 25. I mean, I'd like for it to be half of 25 because I think we can live in a world where 12.5% of our voters are never Trumpers. Now, will there be will there be some resolve on the other side? Do we have between now and November, can Trump make up to the 12.5% who say under, under no circumstance? I mean, I, I'm not a never Trumper, so I can't make that call. I don't know what Trump could do. I mean, it's a little bit like, you know, the most extreme element in our party right now are the never Trumpers. I mean, they, they're under no circumstance, and they will tell you this every chance they get, <laughs> oh, they're that they're not voting for Donald Trump. I mean, Mitt Romney, it's almost like, you know, Joe Scarborough. I mean, I use this as, as, as a kind of a classic example. Scarborough is hosting a show on MSNBC. I mean, he marries Mika Brzezinski. 
you know, he's, he's living the big life in Manhattan. And at some point in time, he writes an op-ed to the New York Times that he's leaving the Republican Party. I don't know a single Republican that asked Joe. Right. He answered a question that was not asked. He answered a question that nobody asked. But that's the arrogance and, and to some degree, the jealousy. And fundamentally, what's happening to the Republican Party right now, today as we speak, those who have been in charge all these years aren't in charge any longer. Is it a big surprise they don't yike it? I mean, of course they don't yike it. I mean, they've called the shots. They've run the joint. They've had the keys to the liquor cabinet, and now they don't. I mean, do you think Mitch McConnell all of a sudden decides to get out because he's of that age? No, McConnell's old and feeble, but he also sees the writing on the wall, and he knows that he's losing ground to America first. For McConnell to be a successful minority or majority leader, he's got to in some way, shape, or form reflect the views and interests of his voters. And McConnell's been paid too much to do that. McConnell's basically livelihood is predicated upon him posing the rank-and-file Republican voter because we're not neocons any longer. I mean, we're not pacifist. We're not isolationist. Some are. But we are very non-interventionist, right? We've had enough of endless wars. And McConnell's family and his business and his world has been very rewarded by endless wars. That's why the $118 billion Senate bill that they called border security, but had $60 billion for Ukraine and $20 billion for border security, that's why it failed. Because McConnell didn't have the horsepower in the Senate to get, they got it through the Senate with 22 senators, but the Senate can do those things and get away with it because they run. We talked about that one day. They run every six years. So John Barrasso can make amends. John Thune can make amends. John Cornyn can make amends. Um, you know, there, there's a big debate in the Senate now about leadership. You know, where do we go from McConnell? McConnell's been there since 2007. He's been in the Senate since 84. I think he's been majority or major, minority leader since 07. So, what, nearly uh, 17 years? I mean, he's been in a very prominent position. Um, John Barrasso, John Cornyn, and John Thune or the three names I'm hearing most, um, Cornyn 72, I think Barrasso 71, Thune is 63 or 4. Um, if I had to pick between any of those three, I mean, I like others. I could probably, I mean, Steve Daines, Rick Scott, you know, I said a little prematurely the other day because I didn't look at the list, the ones that voted for the border bill, or it was really Ukraine funding bill disguised as a border bill, all of the Republicans who voted for that should be disqualified from being Senate leadership. But there's a couple that I think I could, I mean, Barrasso's okay. Uh, if I had Thune, Corn, and Barrasso, I'd be more inclined to be supportive of Barrasso. He's been more in step with the America first agenda. I mean, J.D. Vance hadn't been there long enough. He can't get the votes. Josh Hawley hadn't been there long enough, can't get the votes. Uh, Rand Paul, a little bit too quirky, can't get uh, the votes. We're going to have to compromise. But w- will we get more of an America first leader in the Senate? Absolutely. Because there's nobody less America first than Mitch McConnell. Because America first puts McConnell at odds with his donors. And when McConnell has a choice to choose his donors, who have probably funded the majority of his wife's work life, I mean, if McConnell went to the Senate in 1984, guess what his net worth is? 
in excess of $35 million. Hmm. I mean, his wife's been director of the Peace Corps. She's done some of these government jobs that pay okay. McConnell's been in the Senate. That pays okay for, I mean, it pays really good for Florence Sumter Orangeburg. Pays okay for D.C. You priced housing and, you know, the cost of living in D.C. It's really, really expensive. But some way, somehow, he and his wife figured out a way to create a nest egg of an excess of $35 million. Well, he didn't do that on the backs of, you ready? Construction workers, mechanics, entrepreneurs, <laughs> truckers, and farmers. And those are the highest percentage of America First voters and contributors in that movement. So McConnell has naturally been at odds with the base. The base doesn't pay his bills. He doesn't have a $35 million net worth because of construction workers, mechanics, entrepreneurs, truckers, and farmers. It's the military-industrial complex that have made McConnell and his wife very wealthy people. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Michael in Sumter listening to WDXY. Hi, you're on the air. Hey, good morning. I remember when uh, Mitch McConnell promised us if the people of Massachusetts voted for Scott Brown, he would stop. He would lead the Republicans to stop Obamacare. So that's that's the kind of leader that he was because it never happened. And that's when he lost me. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Appreciate that. I mean, he's been an establishment Republican all of his life. What, what the point I'm trying to make about Barrasso, Thune, and and Cornyn? I mean, if we believe the party struggles demographically with being stale, pale, and male, now that there there's some tailwinds. I mean, the tailwind of all tailwinds for the grand old party is this mass migration of people living blue cities, not blue states. I mean, if you really dig into it. It's blue cities. They're not leaving, at that degree, the blue states. That's going to be kind of a tail. But the headwind is still demographics. The party does not appeal to younger and and, and diverse voters as as good as it can. The last thing you need to do is appoint a 72-year-old man to take an 82-year-old man's place. I mean, I just don't understand the logic there. I'm not saying... Josh Hawley or J.D. Vance or or somebody like, I mean, I think like that makes the that makes the offer a lot more attractive. I mean, I think J.D. Vance walking in a room of young, diverse voters is more sellable than Barrasso. I mean, anybody's better than McConnell. McConnell is the quintessential neocon of that generation. In in, in a weird way, I kind of respect that, Josh, because that's who he is. I mean, it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. So if you spent your entire life kind of um, beholden to that political ideology, I mean, there's not a switch on the wall. You turn off and say, okay, I shouldn't go on Iraq. So all those years of neocon, neoconservatism, you can't ask an 80-some-odd-year-old man to do that. You just can't. Um, Thune is kind of interesting. He's 63, but that's young enough. Um, Thune is a marketable brand. I mean, he looks the part. He sounds the part. Um, I'm too concerned that he's tainted by McConnell. Uh, but he's done a lot of legwork for McConnell and some of the Ukrainian funding, some of the negotiating with Democrats. You know, America firsters don't want to accept any negotiating with Democrats. But the Senate's a unique creature. It, it's required. I mean, you can't, I mean, you've got to really have a supermajority like the Democrats did when they passed Obamacare. I mean, the Senate requires 
some negotiating, some accepting of opinions contrary to what you believe. I mean, that's just the nature of that body. I watched it in South Carolina. It's different than the House. I mean, I've said it before. The House is a manufacturing plant. I mean, the Senate gets it and kind of, whoa, I mean, whoa, uh, we're going to go at a snail's pace. And and it goes at a snail's pace because it's harder to get things done in the Senate. It just is. So when I look at Senate leadership, I'm thinking about America first, and I'm thinking about, you know, how, how do you, who needs to be in control? Because this is the most important function of Senate majority. I mean, obviously McConnell did some good work. Mitch McConnell's claim to fame with people like me are not allowing Merrick Garland. He played hardball. I mean, he did what the Democrats would normally do. He said, we're not giving the guy a chance to be on the Supreme Court. Um, I mean, in, 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 in the most philosophical way, if I want to be a purist, and I think you agree with me, Rev, because we've talked about this. I think Merrick Garland deserved a hearing. Yeah. I'm glad McConnell didn't give it to him. <laughs> Definitely. I, mean, I think Merrick Garland deserved a hearing. I am really glad that Mitch McConnell decided not to give him that chance. Mm-hmm. It paid great dividends for America first. And now we have kind of a Trump effect on the Supreme Court that'll probably outlive Donald Trump in, in all honesty. But I think as we look for the McConnell replacement, we've got to accept. We don't like this. And it'll be somewhat reluctantly, but we've got to accept that there has to be more compromise in the Senate than in the house. Um, I mean, I would love for JD Vance to be Senate majority minority leader, but I'd rather JD Vance be Senate majority leader. Right. But I think right now he represents kind of where the party is. I mean, if the party is 70, 30, America first, 75, 25, America first, JD Vance is about as America first a Senator as you can find. But I don't know that Vance can get there because the house runs every two years. It's easy to flip the house to more of an America first body than it is the Senate for every three elections. People from Pamplico, go, you ready? Three times two is six. So, so for every three elections in the house, you only have one election in the Senate and it's hard to, I mean, there's statewide rate. They're hard. To, it's hard to overturn as fast in the Senate as we'd like for it to happen. But if I had a magic wand and if I were political guru of the world, I mean, I'd say, okay, J.D. Vance, you are now Senate Minority Leader. But I'll know I'm not. So I began looking at who's more like McConnell and who's not. And of the ones that I think can get the votes, Steve Daines and John Barrasso, Rick Scott, I mean, there, there are three there that they kind of stick out to me. Barrasso, 71, 72 years old. I think we can do, I don't want to say better, I think we can do younger than that. Speaking of the House, we have with us Congressman Russell Fry. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm doing well, and I'm not 71. Yeah, so, you're not uh, 71. Hey, and, and better yet, you're recently endorsed by our former president. That's got to feel good, Russell, to have the endorsement of former president Donald Trump as you run for re-election uh, to be a, a member of the Congress representing South Carolina. Well, it's, it's, it's a great feeling. It was somewhat unexpected yesterday. Um, it, you know, we're obviously kind of kicking off the campaign season, and so you know a lot of things are – still kind of fluid, but, uh, you know, it's a great partnership and uh, it's really kind of developed into a, a, a good friendship. And so certainly appreciate his support uh, and excited about uh, not only this race, but uh, his as well and, and feel really bullish about the prospects that, that, that he could get back in there uh, and that we could really fix a lot of the problems in this country. Russell, I want to talk to 
specific problems. I want to talk the Hunter Biden deposition. You know things that we don't. You can probably share some of those things and some of those things you can't. I read some of the transcript. Didn't read it all. It was a very lengthy, um, you know, deposition you guys had. What did what did you learn? What do we know now that we didn't know then? Well, I think the, 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 from a foundational level, it's important to remember the, the deposition, the purpose of a deposition isn't to be, uh, of any deposition, even if you're in court, is, is not to be spicy or sensational, right? It's to develop a record. And so if you read it, and everyone should read it, it's, um, it's uh, illuminating, but again, it's, it's not that sexy, right? And you know that Hunter Biden's not going to go uh, in and admit uh, things, at least haphazardly, but what we did find out is um, that, you know, obviously he admits to owning the companies and he, he admits to his problems with drugs. I was a little surprised, Ken, when I was in the room, um, and now that the transcript is released, we can talk about it. Uh, it was, look, it was an eight-hour transcript. Uh, I was there for a portion of it, uh, or a portion of the deposition. But my impression was, one, he was incredibly well-prepared. His lawyer had done a pretty decent job of making sure that he was prepared. Two, he admitted to things, the drug use, the owning of the companies. We hadn't had him admit that on the record before. But to me, given that you have these pending charges, I was a little surprised that he never pled the fifth, uh, but that was at least my, my take. I mean, he did, uh, you know, he, he denied very vehemently that his father was involved. But again, you know, and he kind of pretends that all this is a, a, a perfectly legitimate international business transaction. Well, no one believes that, right? Like this was, this was masquerading as one of uh, an international business transaction, but it was really because of his access to his father. Uh, everyone has testified. We've had at least three witnesses say that that Joe Biden was the brand, that he was at the center of this. He wasn't the ringleader, but he was kind of the feature. You know, come see the show, see the access that we have to my dad, to my business partner's dad. That was the that was the brand, and that allowed them so many things, uh, you know, access to, to influence and to money and to transactions that otherwise would not have happened. And bribery works just like that. Congressman, when you do what I do, that's must-see TV. I mean, I'm ready for the public hearing. I'm ready for the, the popcorn and diet Pepsi, maybe even a Celsius or two. Is there a timeline? <laughs> when do we expect to see Hunter Biden uh, answer questions in public? Well, he has he offered that. Now, I think what's funny, Ken, is based on the deposition itself, there are some Democrats that were yelling, why don't you do this in the public? Why don't you do this in the public? I mean, they know full well that this is kind of how the House works anyway. Uh, but now that we want to do it in the public, there are some Democrats that are going, well, maybe it's not a good idea. Right? Um, it, it will, I mean, so he has agreed to it. Uh, we don't have a definitive date. Uh, but that is something that the Chairman Comer said, talked about this week in the media. He wants a public hearing, uh, and so I think we're going to go have one. Congressman, a lot of our conversation this week has been about the southern border. Trump not only endorsed Russell Fry, Trump visited our southern border. Biden visited the southern border. I don't know. I mean, I'm political. I'm biased. I'm a partisan. Uh, at times, I'm hackish. I'll admit that. But I don't know how any sane person can see what's happening on our southern border and make heads or tails of that. What are we doing as Republicans to force the Democrats to more aggressively secure our southern border and stop this nonsense from continuing to take place? 
Well, I wish we were being more aggressive. I think that's maybe a, a criticism that I would I would have with my own side sometimes is we win on the messaging. Okay, we, the American people see that we're doing that, and we should continue to do that because it's driving. I mean, it is it, it is terrifying the, the other side because they've ignored it. For I mean, heck, Ken, my first hearing, D- Jerry Nadler said that we were engaged in conspiracy theories and that we were imagining a border crisis. Um, and so, you know, take that and put it on a loop and and let it be. So keep winning the messaging war, I think, is important. Keep talking about it to the American people, highlighting the failures of this administration on it. But beyond that, I wish that we would take a robust uh, stance in the Congress, in the House, and in the Senate, that we're not going to move some of these things unless we get true border security. And I'm not talking about funding NGOs to process this stuff. I'm talking about real border security. Heck, give me a win on the razor wire that Texas put up. I mean, just give me a win somewhere uh, that we can point to. And so I know that we passed H.R. 2. It's a great piece of legislation. I know that the president has all the authority that he needs right now. He, he, he removed all these policies that were successful via executive order, and he can just as easily put them back into place. He should do that. But we should we need to be more forceful on this issue because we are we are going we are at risk in my opinion of, of losing our country um, and at risk of, of having somebody come in here that has I mean none of them have any business being here if they're not legal but particularly if they're on the terror watch list and intend to do us harm I think that is where we need to be I think we need to be forceful on this and I think the American people support that quite frankly. Russell, those two stories have dominated a lot of conservative talk radio, the news cycle, Republican politics. There's something that you've been intimately involved in, human trafficking. You had a press conference on the Trafficking Survivors Relief Act. That flew under the radar. What exactly is that? So it's a, it's a bill. There are 47 states that have this. And thanks for bringing that up. It was, a, it was actually a great day we had at the Conway Courthouse. We had Ed Clements from uh, y'all solicitor, uh, come over. We had Sheriff Brian Wallace from Marion law, law enforcement all over the place, but 47 states have a law that basically says that if you are a victim of human trafficking and, and oftentimes victims are picked up by law enforcement for say identity theft, for prostitution, for something else, but they're being, they're kind of like the puppet, right? They are doing the bidding of what the traffickers want them to do. And so if they're picked up in their charge, they have a blemish on their record. And when they get out of jail, uh, or get free, then they go back into the world that they're in. This bill would say that if you're a victim of human trafficking, it would be a defense in court. But if you could show that you're a victim of human trafficking, you say, hey, I'm a victim, and you could show that, um, then your charges would be dropped. And so this is actually a really good bill because it unites the right and the left. We have CPAC that supports it. Um, we have law enforcement organizations that support it, and we have victims organizations that support it. And so it gives people a second chance. There was a victim there at the press conference that talked about her story, and she said, "Look, I can't, I can't apply to get an, uh, to get a lease with an apartment because I've got this on my record. I can't vote uh, because I've got this on my record." And she's like, I'm, "I'm comfortable talking about my story now, but if I had some mechanism to clean up my record and to tell my story, that would just..." In, inherently help and, and law enforcement really like it because of this it it, it, it is a very victim focused bill uh, but when when victims of human trafficking talk then law enforcement can get the true bad guys and that's why it's a good that's why it's a good bill it's why it's supported by 
the law enforcement community. And so feel good about it. We've got about, I think, 20 co-sponsors in the house so far, and we're, we're building that every day. And uh, it's, I think it's got a really good chance to pass on a, on a bipartisan level. We appreciate the time. We appreciate the update on this F-R-Y-D-A-Y Friday. Thank you, um, Congressman. Appreciate your time. Always a pleasure, my friend. Thank you. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Got some calls. We'll get there on the other side. 843-661-0937 is our number. Talking about border security, talking about Hunter Biden deposition. Uh, Those were two big stories over the weekend. One of the bigger stories that we're not talking as much about is this, um, this replacement for Mitch McConnell. It's a good day for America first when a non-America first leader steps down. You know what gives you an opportunity? To replace him with a more America first minded Senate minority leader, hopefully Senate majority leader here sooner than later. And I'll predict that whoever the minority leader is will be the majority leader come 2024. I mean, the odds are in our favor, our Republicans' favor for taking over the Senate. Um, the struggle is going to be in the House. I mean, the Democrats are playing a lot of defense. You've got, um, I mean, Manchin's already, that's done. I mean, the Re- West Virginia will have a Republican. I mean, Jim Justice will be the senator from West Virginia. And then you've got the uh, Mont- Tester in Montana. I mean, I think the Republicans have found a good candidate there. Um, Kristen Sinema is running. You know, I, I don't know how that sorts itself out. Carrie Lake is a little bit polar, uh, a lot polarizing. <laughs> she is a controversial and seems to enjoy the controversy and attention, but I think West Virginia flips. I think there's a chance that um that Montana flips. Where uh, Pennsylvania, I mean, there there'll be a contested race there. Uh, Bob Casey is the incumbent. Um, the person that lost to Doctor Oz. I mean, I call him. He's one of those fleece sweater vest wearing Republicans. A little bit too country club for me, but you know, it is to each his own. He's one of us instead of one of them, whatever that means in Washington. And it means a lot. I mean, Josh looks at me like, I wish you wouldn't say that. One of us, one of them. Well, in Washington, it's one of us or one of them. I mean, that's the nature of the beast. That's the way the duopoly works. Are you with us or against us? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's kind of George W. Bush, you know, famously said, you know, you're with us or you're against us. And that's kind of the way Washington um, settles so its, wh- why couldn't we get uh, Mitch McConnell to go ahead and step down now? Why is he waiting till November? Well, I think that's the deal he cut. I mean, I think the deal he cut was, hey, I'll get out of here, but give me until November. And, I mean, McConnell had lost a lot of influence. I mean, some of the trust in the caucus had gone by the wayside. The, the primary problem with Mitch McConnell was he opposed his base. I mean, he, he is, as we speak today, he is the most prominent Republican outside of Speaker Johnson. I mean, he is the second highest ranking Republican office holder in America. And he doesn't have much use for the base. And that's why I wish he would step down now. Well, I mean, I get it, you wish. But, I mean, the Senate, once again, whatever, I mean, if the Senate were a microwave, it would cook twice as, excuse me, it cook half the speed. I mean, if right. you took, if the Senate were a microwave and you pressed high, it wouldn't work. If you press <laughs> medium, it might work. If you press low, it would work just fine. It's the nature. And if you go back and read some of the founders' comments, I mean, that's what they intended. They really intended in the weirdest way imaginable, their desire was for the Senate to frustrate. I mean, they really felt that ebbs and flows and, and gyrations of agenda would come along, Rev, 
in the house, it's okay for the house to be a little bit animated and, and fast moving and a little bit twitchy. You know, I'm in the house. It, it, it's a little more react, reactive to the mood of the moment. The Senate, nah. I mean, it's going to take its sweet time whether Republicans or Democrats are in charge. I want the Republicans to begin thinking about a big issue. I mean, what do you do if the stars ever align? Is it overturn Obamacare? Is it something to do with the debt? Is it something to do with whatever? I mean, whatever that big moment in time, what are the Republicans ready for if they catch every break imaginable? Um, I mean, if, if the 2030 census does what I think it does and we get such an advantage in an electoral college, we naturally get an advantage in some of the, uh, some of the House races. Now, it doesn't necessarily affect the Senate because we've got that, you know, two senators per state, whether it's Wyoming, California, New York, or Texas, doesn't matter. I mean, there's a little beauty in that. There's a little disgruntlement amongst some of the, uh, some of the Democrats. But I want the Republicans to begin thinking about an America First agenda item. That may be a good question, Josh. I mean, what, what should the priority of the America Firsters be if the stars align and they get enough votes to, I mean, if they were to get 60 votes in the Senate? I mean, what, what would happen? What would they want to do on day one? I mean, we know what the Democrats did. They socialized health care. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had waited for a long, 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 long time to change 20% of our GDP, and they did. And, I mean, as someone who's living with the consequences, it ain't much fun. But they didn't see Scott Brown. Remember, Kennedy dies, and I mean, they, they're scrambling after that, and they didn't see Scott Brown in Massachusetts, and I mean, they, they had the votes. We at one point in time had a chance to overturn it, and Biden, excuse me, uh, McCain with the thumbs down. I think the Republicans need to begin thinking about, okay, what if everything breaks our way and we get this unique opportunity, a window in time, what are we ready to do? Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. We've talked a lot of hypotheticals and and some of the things we aren't sure of. I, I found an interesting data point this week I want to share with our listeners. I mean, we're always dividing, you know, this percentage of these people. We talked about this morning. Um, the Federal Election Commission requires you to list an occupation when you make a donation. So I've got the five occupations that donate by the highest percentage to Democrats. In other words, 93% of people who say their occupation is a professor donate to Democrats. 91% of psychologists donate to Democrats. Um, 91% of social workers, 90% of scientists, 90% of writers. I mean, that would be per occupation, per uh, ratio, kind of a percentage-wise. Those are the, not the biggest contributors, but the highest percentage of those people contribute to uh, Democrats, construction workers, mechanics, entrepreneurs, truckers, and farmers are donating to Demo- excuse me, Republicans at the highest percentage. That's kind of a data point. You can read what in that you choose to read. Um, the more college someone gets, the less likely they are to vote Republican. I mean, that there's no doubt there's a correlation there. If someone goes to college a year, two years, three years, four years, five years, six years, seven years, eight years, 10 years, 12 years. I mean, the, the more college you have, the more likely you are to vote for a Democrat. But here's an interesting number. You ready? Republicans win married men. Republicans win unmarried men. It's a toss-up 
for married women. I mean, it, it's pretty close. I mean, the, the, the Democrat wins, but by a percent or two. Unmarried women, 70% vote Democrats. So whatever our message is, Josh, it's not resonating with unmarried women. We're holding our own with married men. We're holding our own with unmarried women, with unmarried men. We're holding our own with married women. We're getting killed with unmarried women. I mean, we are getting, it's 70-30 on unmarried. And I, I, it's kind of, in, why? Hmm. Why is that? Abortion? I, I guess. I don't know. I, I mean, wonder. unmarried women don't think much of the Republican Party or its agenda platform. Maybe it's Donald Trump. I don't know. Uh, maybe they've been convinced by the media he's what they say he is. Back in a few. <laughs> so I, I guess we can stop calling this the delegation hour and call it the three greatest men in the history of mankind. Uh, they get their own theme music. I would imagine their credits rolling on a screen um, somewhere. And we have a full house today. Um, why do you play Phillips theme music before you play Mike's? And I mean, is Philip your favorite, Josh? Well, it's a fair. I mean, if I were Mike or Jay, I'd yeah. want to. I'd want to know that. So first off, we know what you're trying to do here. You're trying to plant <laughs> seeds of dissension between us, and it's working. We'll give you that. Oh, yeah. Well, but I'm just no. I'm a just friendly competition. I want to be. I want to be fair-minded. I mean, I, I want to be absolute fair-minded about you know who gets preferential treatment here. And for some reason, Josh likes Philip more than he does Mike or Jay. Whoa. Point made, Jay. Point well, I mean, made. Well, I mean, I'm serious. I mean, I, I would if mm. I were Jay and Mike, I would say, hey. Why Phillips music first every time? Why not my theme song every time? I mean, if I weren't the humble servant that I am, I'd be offended that I don't have a, a theme song. But I, my goes much smaller. I, I'm than, the delegation chair. Okay, fair okay. enough. You're right. You're right. You've, got a, you've got a little more gray hair yeah. than, than, uh, than everybody else here. You've earned the right to be first in line. Uh, 18 years is a long, okay. long time. Okay, uh, Mr. First in line. Um, <laughs> what's up with the health care czar? Why does South Carolina need a health care czar? All right, so this is the silly part of the whole discussion. You know, for, for years Don't insult, and years. He didn't insult the voters. He said, here's the no. silly part. For, the, for years and years, seven people who are appointed to the DHEC board would make this call if they had to have a quarantine. What's the call? Well, the call is like a quarantine. Okay. Let's say a, a bad thing broke out in a local area and. You may have to quarantine a, a certain part, not the whole state, over one, one issue. Uh, and so those seven people, they're unelected, right? They're appointed by the governor, what, confirmed by the Senate. But you can't take those folks out if they do a bad job. It has to be for just cause. What we did this week, we put, we put one person in who would make the call, but they're right under the supervision and the direction of the governor. And if the governor doesn't like what's going on, he can fire him, put in an acting director who does exactly what he needs. So we've got a better system at the end of the day with what we we went down the road this weekend. And, you know, you're combining what about five different health care, and that's really what this is focused on. This was never about getting to all the policy of how to do it. It was one step at a time. Let's figure out how to put them all together. That's all that legislation really was. And then you work out some of the details in the second bill when you, when you figure out how it all works. This isn't going to be an overnight thing. Not you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I think his point's well made. I think the the key to this bill is the constituents who have asked for more transparency, more accountability, and more of a direct line to figure out who's making decisions. That's what this bill accomplishes. Because uh, if you were to ask anyone in the state of South Carolina, ask the five point three million people. 
Who is on the DHEC board that appoints the director? I'm going to guess that 0.1% of the people could tell you who's on the DHEC board who appoints their director. But if you ask people, who's the governor of the state? Eh, governor Henry McMaster. So someone is going to make the call. Do we want it to be an unelected board who no one knows and who's accountable to no one that people, constituents can reach? Or do you want it to be the governor of the state that they get to vote for every four years? Good so go back in time just a little bit. We had DHEC, and everyone agreed DHEC was way too big, didn't know what— Too they, diverse, too many responsibilities. Too, they, they were, it was too broad an agency. It, you know, it, was, it was a typical agency. It was established, I think, 1973. DHEC couldn't even tell you all the things they were doing when they would come to the state house and report for um, oversight purposes. So everyone agreed. We passed last year. Let's, we're going to break DHEC up. We're going to send all the environmental stuff one way. We're going to send the health stuff one way. I think it passed the Senate. Mike, you might remember this, 44 to 0, passed the House 105 to 0 last year when we decided we were going to break up DHEC. We didn't know exactly what to do with the health services component. We knew it, it was also a big pill to swallow. There's a lot of different agencies, a lot of moving parts. Um, but we knew it was important to get it right. So we, we we told the Department of Administration, this is your responsibility. Go out and hire an expert. I think they found someone up in Boston because that's where smart people are. Paid them a lot of money to come down and say, tell us what other states are doing. Tell us what we do right. Tell us what we do wrong. Tell us some options we have for creating a model for providing health services in South Carolina. They did that, told us we were the worst state of all the states. We were the most fragmented in our delivery of health. The example that, that kind of resonated with me was the, the criminal standard. You got a guy who's a drug addict, but he also has mental health issues, which is a pretty common thing in the world of today. One agency, the, the drug agency says, you're not our problem. You're the, you're the mental health problem. Mental health people says, no, no, you're not our problem. You're the drug addiction people problem. That guy ends up in jail and the, and the ER more than anywhere else spending taxpayer dollars you know, at a tremendously inefficient rate and then in prison. Um, so we had to find a model to fix this. This legislation is the, is what was born of that process of establishing a new, um, administrative vehicle of how we're going to run health services in South Carolina. This concept of a czar, someone called, told me that, why'd you call it a czar? That sounds communist. Well, yeah, we, we don't call it a czar. That's just created by the, the people who think it's a bad idea. And I get it. I don't some like the, the term czar. Some of those crazy radio show yeah. hosts, they throw czar around <laughs> to try and stir up a conversation. I don't like that term either. But back to what these guys have said, they're absolutely right. This puts the accountability. We didn't change any policy, by the way. All those abilities, those things that that it, that it, that the this, this director will have the authority to do, Already, there is the authority to do by way of the board and other things. We're just creating an administrative vehicle for the health services to run in South Carolina that is hopefully more efficient, that will hopefully save taxpayer dollars. I know that sounds crazy coming from government, but that's the goal. That's what we strive. That's what we say we strive to do. And we'll hopefully be accountable to the people so that when there is a rogue person like, like that we've all, we all fear, the governor can look them in the eye and fire them on the spot, and we don't have to worry about we don't have to worry about just cause, and we don't have to worry about going to court. The governor can say, "No, sir, you no, ma'am, you violated, you, you've gone, gone outside the lines. You're fired." Very, very well explained, Mike. You want to you want to add something to say? This is why I appreciate this show. The, you asked the questions, but 
for those constituents who may not be able to hear the show, if you have a question, please don't just believe what you read on Facebook or what you get in your text message. Reach out to any one of us. I, I know these gentlemen well enough to know none of us will ever duck from a vote. We'll explain it. You may not like it, but we'll explain it. But hear it from the horse's mouth instead of just believing what you read, because just because it's on the Internet doesn't mean it's true. Well, I think that's the beauty of what we do here for an hour every every Friday morning. And some know where you guys are here, know how to get in touch with you. Uh, some don't. Mike, I want to go. I'll stay with you here and then kind of um, I want to make sure when I, I was at a debate once and I got the first question every time. And we're going like, come on, dude. I mean, that's not that's not fair. So I don't want to give I don't want to give Graybeard here uh, the first question <laughs> every time. It's not gunslingers, Graybeard. Now I want to give um I'm, you ran. I mean, comprehensive immigration reform. I mean, that's very ambiguous. Judicial reform. Um, people in South Carolina are, are, are trying to consider a better way to apply justice. You're not king of the world. Jay's not king of the world. Philip's not king of the world. He may think he is. Well, I mean, no, no, but, but, but in all honesty, and I, want, I want to be serious here for a second. You're in the Senate. You're one member. These two are in the House. They're two members. There's going to be some sort of compromise when it comes to judicial reform. You may be very ambitious, but you've got to accept maybe a watered-down version of what you really want. What, what, what are you willing to accept now? I mean, I'm not asking you what you want. But what are you willing to kind of haggle over and debate over that you think can make it through the Senate and the House regarding judicial reform? Yeah, there's a few key points. That, in the Senate Bill 1046 is the, the current vehicle that we pulled out of judicial uh, Judiciary Committee, and it's on the Senate floor. We started debating it yesterday, and we'll continue into next week. A few tenets of that that we believe are really important. The JMSC will continue in its structure because it's, it's a constitutional provision in there for that. Um, but the JMSC um, shouldn't be able to essentially handpick the three people who will be up for the, the Senate and the House to vote on. Um, the, the phrasing that I heard since I've been in there is it's a steak and two hamburgers. Um, so the JM, and I'm not accusing anyone of, of, sure. of malfeasance or anything wrong, but, but what can happen is if some, if you've got a favorite um, you pick your favorite, and then you pick two also rands. As long as they're qualified, those are the three that get through. So your person by design gets picked. Um, that needs to be expanded. Now, there's not a perfect number. Should it be five be through? Should it be ten? Should it be everyone who's found qualified? Um, but the days of the JMSC having the ability to almost pick who the judge is going to be before we even vote for it, um, those days should be over, and so they shouldn't limit it to three. A second part, and and I have so much respect for my colleague Jordan here, who's on the JMSC, and he's I believe that he would make a good decision. But by nature, a lawyer legislator who gets to pick, a, who gets through, who then gets to essentially vote on that person, gets to fire them, and then also gets to decide what they make, and then possibly try cases in front of them. Um, the the provision in the bill that says. There should be no lawyer legislators on the JMSC. Lawyers, fine. They know the business. They know the, the industry. But to have somebody who then gets to try cases, but that judge knows that that lawyer legislator gets to choose if they stay, you get gray areas when you're on the bench. So removal of lawyer legislators. And then the third portion is magistrates. And there are those who didn't want to get magistrates included in the bill. 
and myself and Chairman Peeler especially fought hard against that. There's some senators, Ken, and you know it. They love the power of being able to appoint their magistrates. And magistrates is the people's court. They see more cases than the other courts combined. But we needed to have magistrate reform to where the House was a part of it, the Senate's a part of it, and there's more public input in the magistrate process to make sure magistrates reflect the conservative nature of our state and that they're more accountable to the citizens that go before magistrate court. Jay, you've you've explained it. I mean, normally when I hear something that makes a lot of sense, I own it. I take credit for it. I've given you all the credit of the world when I say this. Jay Jordan told me we're trying to do it the best of all the bad ways. I mean, I think that is so well said. There is no really good way to pick judges. What do you stand on what, what you think is essentially important in reform? Well, you're absolutely right. When we're, talk, we're talking about justice at the end of the day, and um, that is, if you look back over history, that's a hard thing to make sure that we, A, protect, but also preserve. And so it, it, it becomes a balancing act. I think Mike just outlined some things that are, are some good things. Um, I absolutely agree that the magistrate process needs to be part of this. There needs to be more public input. There needs to be more opportunity for the public to participate in the process so that we can hear what are the um, good things and bad things about that's going on in this court that, that, that a lot of people in South Carolina deal with. Um, I, I would say a few things. I'm not against taking the cap off, as we've talked about a lot. You know, I will say be careful what you wish for. As we've all lived in Columbia, you know, we get you get three candidates coming out as qualified and nominated because you might get ten people running. Eight might be qualified, but then, again, under the rules, three are nominated. Um, I haven't seen to the degree that I think the fear has exist in my two years as JMSC, but I recognize there is a potential for that to occur. I haven't seen it, but I can see how you could – Stars could align and, and it could happen. Um, but what I've also seen is, and I'm not picking on my friends who are the non-lawyers in the room, but when the judges come out of screening, and so let's say there's 60 judge candidates across the entire spectrum that we're looking at, you start seeing people diving behind dumpsters and running from these judge candidates because these judge candidates want to talk to the, the legislators to say, hey, these are the reasons you need to support me. And at the end of the day, you get tired of being chased by across the parking lot, through the parking garage, and, you know, what's that knock on the door? It's, a, it's the judge candidate trying to get in to talk to you. And they should do those things. And the, the issue is going to be volume. How can we how can we adequately process? And then the last thing, the only thing I would be cautious of, we can't say to a one particular group of representatives or senators, you, we're going to limit your participation in this process. That limits my or or others' ability to say, um, send me to Columbia because you're. But but I can't participate in every ingredient of this. So you couldn't say to a car dealer, hey, we're going. You can only participate in these committees and not those committees. So we need to be careful with that. I think now, back to the underlying point, we could potentially solve that with one of the ideas that's being discussed, and that is term limit a member of the JMSC. So Jay Jordan, you can only serve four years on the JMSC. So you're not going to see repeating judge candidates come through to be able to hold their livelihood in your hands. Again, you're not, you're not the kingmaker. Correct. Well, you, you're, you're, you're in the, in the moment you might be in the process, but that judge isn't going to have to come back in front of you a second time and have to go through it again with you. Philip. All right. So what's the reason for this discontent? Is it terrible judges? Is that is that really it? It's not. The reason is is because Republicans have taken over the House and the Senate, 
And we're actually beginning to apply some some thought process into which way someone leans. And Republicans are going to win that battle because we're two-thirds of the vote. So Democrats are squealing. They're looking for any, any way to change something because they're not winning many judge seats unless somebody runs, say, in, a, in an area that is dominated by Democrats, say, Richland County and, and maybe one other county beside it, and you're electing a local guy. There may be no kind of conservative people even running for that judgeship. But otherwise, we're winning about all of them. The second problem is, is the House has enough votes in the Republican Party to elect a conservative without even considering the Senate. So the Senate's not happy. So this is a power struggle that we're beginning to dominate as conservatives. Be careful what you change because it's finally swung in our position, in our favor, because there's enough of the old guard uh, that that are judges that were put in there by the more Democrat society of 20, 30 years ago, they're retiring now and, and conservatives are winning. So, you know, y- y'all can change a lot, but I'm just going to tell you right now, we're in the catbird seat. Let, let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Makes me nauseous, but it is what it is. <laughs> I guess for these guys to, I mean, the important people come if you give them something. So Darn we're giving man. them their own theme songs. Yeah, we got Dad Pepsi. Did you Mom. notice? Did you notice during that break, Philip got up, went in there, and buttered Josh up a little oh, bit. Told him he's he doing did. a great it's job. All, it's all, the, yeah, I mean, this I is all that. Okay, I, I want. I want to stay in this line. We have a caller. We'll get there in two seconds. Give me two he seconds. Wants to so stay let me first. Touch. I, I want to. I want to start with Jay. The one thing that people fail to understand that have not been in the state house and don't understand how things work. The house has a bill. They send it to the Senate. Senate has a bill. They send it to the House. When you pick judges and trustees. It's a joint session. When I marched from the small and friendly confines of the South Carolina Senate to the big and spacious, you know, room that is the House, I realized there's a whole lot more people over here than there are over there. This is not policy. This is not legislation. This is where the House can exert its influence at a far greater degree than the Senate can, picking judges, picking trustees. And there does become turf battles, Jay. I mean, I don't think it's, I mean, I think people would be not completely and totally naive to not believe that at times the House plays the card of having a large, a much larger body. So, excuse me, once a year, the House and Senate face off in a softball game. I think the Senate has won one time in the last hundred years because they brought in some, you know, retired Cincinnati Reds. (laughs) You know, designated hitter or something like that. A ringer. Um, yeah, they brought in a ringer. <laughs> Johnny right. Bench did yeah, not yeah. cheat. The king and his court <laughs> came back, and they, they, they ran, ran the place. Um, the reason is there's just more of them than there are of, – of more of us than there are of them. And a lot more. A lot more. And so when you get into a um, – we're talking about a majority of 170 compared to a majority of 124, then go get a majority of the Senate – the, the numbers are what they are, so you're and exactly it, right. And it kind of sort of makes it easy for the House to exert its influence in some of these joint sessions, Philip. Yeah, I've seen some of these races that begin, and, and two weeks outside of, of the actual vote, we can begin collecting up and see where the vote lies, just who, who's the favored person. And I've seen that some senators walk over and say, well, how's that race going? The, let's say the second day. And we say, well, that race is over. And they go, what? We, we hadn't even started counting in the Senate. And I'm like, that race is over. i got 90 votes right here. You know? And so, yeah, it, it's, it's a majority. They have advantages in a lot of ways, too. They hold up every dadgum bill we ever send to them. And it don't take but one or two guys to put their name on it. I mean, there's different powers. 
So you can't, unless you're going to make everything completely equal, exactly the same rules and all that, and have basically the same body, then then there's no sense getting into this because we're not going to give them what they want because we don't want to give away our power. And, and, and they're going, they're trying to hold up the election of judges right now because they're not getting their way. So there's always been a back and forth between the two bodies. And Senator Rickenbach, there has to be some consideration of how much larger the House is. Okay, I, I, we don't need to be an accountant to know the math, right? 124 state reps, 46 senators. So you have 170 in the body. Pretty simple math will tell you you need 86 votes to have the majority. So they can start counting, stop, go have lunch, and have the 86 before we even begin the process. Uh, but it's it's that's what this bill is attempting to do is provide some compromise. It would be a majority of each body— so the majority of the 124 and a majority of the 46 would select the judges. And in exchange for them giving up the fact they have the sheer numbers, they get as much say in the magistrates. Um, the theory behind it is there's 353 magistrate judges. There's 121 judges from the family court, circuit court, appellate court, and Supreme Court. So you look at the number of cases and the number of lives that are impacted Magistrates impact a lot more lives, even though a $7,500 verdict isn't like a $300,000 verdict that can derail you or 30 days in jail is pretty inconvenient. So the thought in this bill is, okay, House, we'll give you as much say in magistrates if you let us have an equal say in the rest of the judges. That's, that's kind of an interesting point. The only thing I don't want to get lost in this equation is this is maybe one out of 10 things we deal with where the House has the advantage over the Senate. There are so many things. We were just talking about that cabinet secretary. <coughs> That person is chosen by the governor with the consent of the Senate, not the General Assembly, not the House, but the Senate. And there are many, many, many things like that. I can remember a quick funny story. I'm a freshman in the House. We passed some great bill. I don't even remember what it was. I look over at Philip. Why aren't you happy about this? He says, we passed it the last three sessions, and the Senate isn't going to do anything with it. So there is a back and forth between the bodies in search of a balance. What that balance is, I don't think we've ever truly found and maybe never will found, but there is a balance we search for. And I think Philip hit on something. We've had an evolution in South Carolina politics. Some Republicans began as Democrats, but now we're finding the majority of opinion leaders and thought leaders are genuinely conservative in nature, Philip. We're getting there. That's right. And and some people don't like that change. I don't blame them. The Senate doesn't like the way the judges are elected because it's a power struggle. All this is a power struggle. I mean, you, what are you in here for money? I don't make anything for going. I make 10400 a year. So it's the power struggle. That's the game. Well said. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Barbara in Hartsville, you're on with the delegation. Good morning. Good morning. How are you all doing? We're good. How are you? Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. I, I just do want, I want to address uh, House Bill 4927. I, I want to know what section direct the director, health director, to submit to the governor. What section of the bill? Uh, because we, I have not been able to find it. Uh, how many pages is the bill, by the way? I, I can't answer that. Can any of you answer how many pages the bill are? It's 60-something. 60-something pages. Okay, because what we are, we're seeing here is a, it's a very, 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 very long bill. Um, so can anyone tell me what section requires the director to submit to the governor, please. 
Thank you, Barbara. Anybody want to tackle that? I mean, what section of the bill? So I don't have the bill in front of me. It is a very long bill, but I think it's clearly stated that the governor can fire the director immediately without cause. Um, And I'd say that's the section that clearly demonstrates the governor's authority over the individual, by the way, he or she appointed to that office. Is there any other legislation that we're not considering? I mean, you guys are up there doing the people's work the people's business. Uh, Philip, I'll start with the budget. I mean, wh- where are we in the budget? Is there any bills or, or legislation affecting the process of the budget? Well, the budget uh, has passed our committee. It's going. It's sitting on the desk right now. It's been printed. I think it's supposed to sit on the desk Monday. And so we'll have a week to consider it and look at it and study it because it's, it's a huge document compared to that bill. And, and so then the week after that, then we'll take up the budget. But, you know, we had a decent year. But it certainly wasn't the kind of money we've we've been getting for the last two years. That's that's monopoly money, basically. So at this point, we're we didn't have a lot of money to spread around. We didn't grow government much. I mean, we've got a five hundred million dollar uh, tax rebate that that's going back for property taxes. That's never been done. I mean, so we've got the hundred million that's coming back on income taxes, and that used up a lot of our money. We, uh, teachers got a pretty good raise in the House version of this. So once you get through the reserve and everything, I mean, I'll be honest with you, I had $13 million to spread around 11 agencies. That's nothing. That's nothing. So it's not like a big year we're growing government, and, hey, those agencies are going to have to learn it's a pullback here. We had some extra money, but not enough to make them happy. Mike, you mentioned Chairman Peeler. He'd be the finance chair. I mean, he's guy driving the budget in the in the Senate. What what do you expect the Senate's priorities to be uh, in the budget? Yeah, I think infrastructure is going to be a, a large priority um, across the state. Uh, we've talked about this before. You know, an upstate senator. Um, has very different concerns than a low country senator and those in the Midlands. Um, particularly, I think we need to have some more focus on here in the PD. Uh, now, I know I'm a PD senator, but I do believe if you look at the traffic count uh, both on I-95 and even in some of the other state roads here into the PD, um, we should get our just reward here. We're not as large as the upstate or the Midlands or the low country. And, and now the Grand Strand, um, 30% growth in the last 10 years. So that Grand Strand is is really ringing the bell for I-73 for more infrastructure r- dollars there. And, and I, I get their request, uh, but how about we focus on the existing roads here in the PD as opposed to creating new roads? And Chairman Peeler is very mindful of infrastructure and, and energy are the two areas. All roads lead to Gaffney. Let's go. <laughs> Jay? I, I'll piggyback off that last comment because I think infrastructure is key, but in, and energy is exactly um, part of that, as we've said before. Um, the, set, the state has grown tremendously and is on track to continue that growth. Um, and we have not um, prepared as of yet to satisfy the energy energy needs of our state. Currently, I don't think most people, a lot of people know this, but we're having to pump in energy, purchase energy from North Carolina and Georgia. We're also in a competing, and, and they're growing as well. And, you know, how long will it be before they won't sell us that energy? You've got other states like Alabama in the southeast that are in the same boat we're in. They're buying energy. We're going to have to solve our energy problem, um, if, and if we don't, it's going to be a catastrophe. Is that a partnership government in the private sector? I mean, is that kind of what it looks like moving forward? It, it has to be. Um, you know, if you go back in time, we've had that Santee Cooper discussion for forever. There was absolutely a time and a place 
especially in, in um, the South, in rural rural parts of our country where government had to be sort of in the middle of providing energy. That day is really, really past. Now that we've met and there just wasn't the votes to, to do anything to sell or to, to do anything with Santee Cooper. So that is what it is. We've got to live under, under that umbrella. But if we don't have a uh, private partnership um, stake in that process, government's not going to get it right. I can tell you that. So we've got to take advantage and, and partner with the folks that know what they're doing and, and watch them, govern them, keep a balance and a check on them so that we can keep it fair and keep it um, efficient and keep it economically reasonable. That's one of the things we continue to see out of, get out of control. We've got to keep a constraint on that so that people can afford the energy. But that, that's absolutely got to happen. Okay, we'll take a break. We'll be back. i got a call. We'll get there on the other side back in a few. 843-661-0937. We satisfied everybody's ego. They've had their <laughs> theme song. They've kissed Josh butt. Um, we just thank these guys for coming in on the fly, um, in the dark. You call in. I mean, that's rare. I mean, it, it really mm-hmm. and truly is. It's rare that elected officials will take calls off the cuff. Um, but I think there's, I think the Trump phenomenon has changed that. I think authenticity and telling people what you believe is rewarded now in the political system. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Becky in Florence. Good morning. You're on with the delegation. Okay. Well, this is an off-the-cuff question. The South Carolina Supreme Court, the majority are Republican. I understand there's one Democrat and will probably be replaced with a Republican. My father was in the hospital a few years ago. And he, at McLeod, and he was given, administered medicine from another patient after he was administered his, his medicine. My father was sent home quickly, and we were not told about this, and he coded on the driveway, and they basically tried to let my dad die in my driveway. This happened, and I've been told pretty much that I needed to settle with McLeod, and I have because I was held against the wall because we have not raised the caps against these hospitals that do do things like this because my dad was sent home to, to just die in the driveway. And y'all have a responsibility to people to, to raise that rate so that these hospitals can actually be hurt with this type of action. This should not be allowed, and this should not be going on. Y'all have a responsibility to people. To My dad was a hardworking man. He voted for Republicans through and through, and that doesn't even matter. But he worked his whole life, and y'all have a responsibility to honor this. And well, well, ma'am, when you say they have right. a responsibility, what, what, what? I mean, I, I understand you, you believe the hospital made a, a terrible mistake. Your father lost it. I get all that, but I'm not sure I understand some of the legislation that could stop that from happening or make sure it doesn't happen again. What? I mean, I, I'm, I'm not ignorant of what you're talking about, and it's tragic, and I'm sorry as I can be, but I'm not sure what the expectation is of the General Assembly. My expectation is that they could convene and they could they could raise these caps on the, when you're a nonprofit hospital, you cannot. I don't care if you murder somebody, cut their leg off, cut their 
whatever you do, you can't you can't file a lawsuit against them but for three hundred thousand dollars. That's it. It doesn't matter if they don't document that they overdosed your father. It doesn't matter that they don't tell you and they send you out of the hospital to do CPR on the ground at your house to try to get your dad back. And then I was only told this by a nurse that just randomly walked by me. I would have just thought my dad died. But y'all have a responsibility to, to not to, y'all can raise these cats. And you know you can. That Thank you, ma'am. Well, we got it. Well, but I got your point. I think I understand now what uh, what, what the ask is, so to speak. What I mean, obviously there's a, a personal tragedy involved in that. And we're all obviously sympathetic to that, Jake. Certainly very, very sorry for the this specific tragedy and, and incident. Um, I, I think what we're talking about is a South Carolina tort claims cap, which says that um, public entities, um, the maximum recoverable ability is a certain amount. I'm not an expert in this particular part of the law. Um, that was established years and years ago, um, and, and the theory behind that is that you know these are taxpayer dollars in theory in the back um, that will be paid out. So therefore we're going to cap um, the potential loss there. And it, it, it is something, you know, that we have to address, you know, every so often to determine, you know, is this the appropriate mechanism by which we're govern- covering these things? But we're also, you know, we that's an incident of a, of a tragedy. We don't know all the facts there, but we were, you know, Becky, sorry you went through that obviously. But then we've got other things that where you hear about these. We don't really hear them in South Carolina, but you hear about these runaway juries too. And I'll tell you as a lawyer in other states, I've seen those, and those are those are not good either. So trying to balance how we adequately um, make people whole as we can without offering a way for people to get rich on the backs of the justice system is a balance. You know, I, I've, someone told me this when I first got to Columbia, and I think it's true. We make policy for five, you know, millions of people. And unfortunately, um, situations fall between the cracks because you can't make policy for every single Becky or every single Mike or every single Philip or Jay. You're trying to make a policy that covers everybody, and that just doesn't always work. And that's that's one of the failings of government, unfortunately. Well, I mean, and, and I think the point to, to your point, Jay, is I mean, I'm not saying what the number should be. I don't have any. If it's my mom, it needs to be 100 million. Sure. If it's your mom, it needs to be 100. I mean, I, I respect that. I truly respect that. But but we we litigate ourselves into oblivion, and I think you're opening. Well, I mean, but I think that has to be considered. I don't know if you open the doors to crazy litigation, but it has to be considered where it goes if you start allowing someone to sue a hospital or a government agency for two, three, four, five hundred million dollars. Philip, you want to? You know, businesses don't want to pay out more. Now, when you've got a, a government type of a business, then he's right. We we all have a uh, you know, a need to keep that business alive and not just kill it. We don't want McLeod Hospital right to go broke. No, nobody wants that, uh, even even if they've made a bad mistake. Uh, and, well, they're going to make mistakes. I mean, know, big hospitals who treat thousands of people are going to make mistakes. I mean, that's just we all make mistakes. It's just they're in the business of health care, and, and mistakes at times turn tragic. I, I believe she if this is the true story and, and they've got the goods on it, I believe they deserve a lot more than – Three hundred, but but I think Mike J nails it. I mean, we'd love to make specific laws for every specific case. It's just humanly impossible to do that. Yeah, and I think that's why it should be hard to pass a law um, it, because it needs to be incredibly considered what what the ramifications and even an unintended consequences. 
if it's a $500 million verdict and McLeod would be bankrupted and be out of business in McLeod and Clarendon and Dillon and Darlington and there was no hospital in any of these communities, um, is that a win for the community? So I'm um, all for balancing personal needs versus the, the community good. I'm very sorry for what happened to her family and what happened to her father, but there needs to be a balance there. Jay, is there a fair way to reconsider the number? I mean, if, if the number's 300,000, I mean, is there a fair debate? Okay, that number should be a million. That should, what, what, I mean, we're, we're being arbitrary, and we're, we're, we're making opinions from afar. I mean, you got to be careful doing that. I mean, there, there's a story there, but, but is it, should the General Assembly at times reconsider what the compensatory number is yet another example where we absolutely have an obligation to open the hood on these issues every so often and say, are we getting it right? Are we getting it wrong? Is it time to, to focus on it? Judicial reform is the, is the current example of that. We've done it a certain way for a long period of time. I just filed a bill dealing with probate court. We have to be willing to open the hood and look and look ourselves in the mirror and say, are we getting it right? Are we getting it wrong? What are the things we can do better? And, this, like those other things, should be visited on a recurring basis. And and it's even, I mean, if, if DOT misdesigns a road and the car goes off the road, I mean, there's a terrible tragedy there. It's just, I, I mean, I've been in government, and I don't know how you dot every I and cross every T. I mean, and, and I'm, not, I'm not saying, hey, tough stuff to the lady who lost her father. I, I just think it's going to be, I mean, I, and I'm saying those are anecdotal. I, I just, I mean, there, there's no hospital I know of that don't want to give you the best care they possibly can to avoid some of the negativity that goes along when something goes bad. Thank you to the three of these guys. We'll take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Takes Mondays to make Fridays a very complicated conclusion to our delegation hour brought to you by the John Fetterman Hoodie Company, (laughs) or better yet, the delegation hour brought to you by Greystone properties the real delegation hour it does seem to me and and i was wrong about this rev john fetterman's gotten better i mean when he had the stroke and his doctor said he'll rehabilitate he'll be better he'll get his um feces consolidated i had my doubts i was not sure he would or would not in fact something may have happened in the reprogramming of his faculties because he said some fairly conservative things about the border I know it. and the nonsense going on with the Democrats' immigration uh, policy. We'll shift gears. And and I at some point in time, maybe not today, but tomorrow, I'm going to go uh, Monday. I want to go back and revisit some of the last conversation. Because the one thing I've tried to not get involved in is character assassination, whether it's a company or an individual or, I mean, we are the last bastion of independent thinking and, and critical thinking and allowing people to express themselves as they see fit. But we've tried to encourage to not be personal, not, not be vindictive, not, 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 you know, say things over the airwaves without giving someone else the ability to uh, tell their side of the story. We may have broken our own code at the end of the segment uh, in the last hour. Uh, we got some cleaning up on aisle three to do, and we'll certainly do that. I'm not going to stop, you know, allowing people to express themselves as they see fit. But, but I would ask, be careful of defamation and slander. Um, and there, there, there's some pretty serious libel laws out there that, um, that can be very expensive to navigate if you aren't careful. Lieutenant Governor of South Carolina, Pamela Evett is with us. Good morning, ma'am. How are you? 
Good morning. How are you? I am doing well. So I saw you on television uh, the other <laughs> night in the South Carolina primary when Donald Trump, I refer to as Cheeto Jesus, was giving his um <laughs> was giving his his uh, celebration and and kind of taking a victory lap of, around South Carolina as a female lieutenant governor of South Carolina endorsing not a female former governor of South Carolina. How did you kind of square that up? Well, you know, Ken, you have asked like the number one question that I got. You know, I was on Fox and Friends the very next day, and and that was kind of the the gist of their questions too, right, is why in South Carolina did 60% uh, of female voters go for Donald Trump? And, you know, for me, I've been a Trump supporter since 2015, and, uh, I, you know, I think moms are afraid, and that's what I said there. I think women, moms, myself, I have three children, and we are afraid for our kids uh, for two reasons. First of all, our kids are not, their kids are not as safe today as they were four years ago. That's one. And two, the American dream for them is getting further and further away. And, and, and that's something that we as moms and we as women, we care about. And so even if you're not a mom, if you're not a mom, you're somebody's aunt, you know, you might be, you know, somebody's godmother. You you have children in your life that you care about, and you see that next generation just kind of getting ripped apart. I'm not the person to consider how tolerant we should be, how considerate we should be, but I find myself being more sympathetic toward those who would rather have somebody other than Donald Trump then I'd do someone who loudly and proudly tells you between every bite of a meal, I may never trump her, and under no circumstance or condition will I ever vote for Donald Trump. What do we tell those? Once again, I am understanding of someone who wants a person not named Donald Trump to be the nominee. I don't have much patience for those who profess to be Republicans but say under no circumstance will I vote for Donald Trump. What is your message to them? that this is bigger than just you and your thoughts and what you want. This is about our nation. We are getting invaded at the border. And, it, 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 and you know, th- think about the fact, when, you, when we hear numbers, Ken, I think we get desensitized by numbers because we hear trillions and billions and all these numbers that almost seem like they're made up, right? And then when you hear, oh, 11 million people have crossed the border, Put that in perspective. That is double the size of the population of South Carolina have crossed our border. When you see things, you know, we had a cabinet meeting yesterday and Chief Keel, um, you know, uh, I get asked everywhere, how is how is this illegal uh, immigrant problem affecting South Carolina? Are we seeing numbers here? What are we seeing? You know, are there dumps happening here? Um, and I can I can tell your listeners uh, from Chief Keel, we have not had any reports of mass dumping, right, where you see just busloads and busloads come in. But this is a crisis that affects us all. It affects us because fentanyl is killing our kids. And, you know, I did a press conference for uh, President Trump here in Greenville, and I had a, a woman come up to me, and, and she was very vocal about, you know, how disappointed she was in me and, and how disappointed she is, and she will – she went so far, like you said, to say, I will never vote for him. I, I'm, I'm a Republican. My husband served in the military. I, I will vote for Biden before I vote for him. And I said, then I'm very sorry for you. 
because you don't like the way he talks. But there are parents that cry in my office telling me how their children have lost their lives to fentanyl and care less how a president, uh, that this president would tweet because they would give anything to have their child back and have him in the White House. And maybe, maybe their children would be alive today. And so that's the message I give to people. It is not about you. It is not just about you. It is about our nation. And look at the bigger picture. Because President Biden and his administration, the Democrats, literally are dismantling our country bit by bit. Okay, Governor, I'm a good old boy. Trump doesn't have a problem (laughs) with my crowd. He's got a problem with female voters. I mean, the, the polls are clear. Some of the data gathering and analytics are clear that Trump needs to do better with female voters. He's going to do just fine with good old boys like me. What can Trump do to to make himself more marketable to female voters? Not you personally, but but to the female at large. Well, can I, th- that's why I think um, I become an asset to President Trump. Because I think when you look at suburban moms, when you look at those, you know, you know educated women that are in the business community. I think that's who I can relate to. And I can talk about how our country was better, how our kids were safer, right? And I think President Trump has done a good job this time, really reaching out. You know, I had a lot of friends who kind of said, you know, Pam, I don't know that I can vote for him again. I just don't like the way he talks. And when he was on Sean Hannity with his town hall, and he said, my revenge will be the, the success of this country. He turned them around immediately. You know, everybody's looking for hope. I believe, Ken, that, that everybody wants to vote for him. And, and his demeanor now is giving them that reason. He just has to keep focusing on, and this is what I've said, he's got to just focus on what's affecting all of us at the kitchen table. There are, there are people, as I travel the state, Ken, they're telling me, like, I have to now wonder if I should fill up my tank to full because I have to go to the grocery store. We didn't hear that four years ago. This affects people at home. This makes people change their stance on what, what, what am I willing to put up with to make sure that I can feed my children, that I can pay my electric bill. And I think that becomes very important. Just stick to the issues that affect us all. Our 401ks have been impacted. Our bank accounts are going down. Our food prices are going up. Our gas prices continue to increase. That affects us all. If we keep concentrating on what affects us at our kitchen table, then I think we're going to bring everybody in under the tent. Historically, our party has been regarded as the party of the affluent, the party of big, uh, big business, the party of the country clubbers, Um, I mean, I guess I was an outlier to some degree. I read an article yesterday from the Federal Election Commission about the highest percentage of donors to Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And Trump's support is rooted without question in blue-collar jobs, construction workers, mechanics, entrepreneurs, truckers, farmers. The, The mistake I'm afraid we're going to make, Governor, and I talked to Drew McKissick a little bit yesterday about this, I think we're assuming that the Trump voter is a Republican voter when in reality they are a Trump voter that could be converted into a Republican voter. Do you buy that? Are we making an assumption that that we've not deserved yet? Right. I I think you're spot on with that, Ken. 
I think that there are a lot of people out there that have been affected, maybe people that have never voted, right, who have not wanted to get into the political process for whatever for whatever reason, right? They're seeing it. And, and I think the best thing the Democrats can do is show just how ruthless they are. I mean, let's talk for a minute. I'm a, I'm a business owner. What happened to him in New York cannot be classified as anything but political persecution. Here you have a business that got a loan from a bank who is very well staffed with people to analyze all the data you give them. He made all of his payments back. You don't have a victim. You don't have a bank who's been put into jeopardy. And they award $43 million in penalty to him, wanting to take away his property? I mean, that, that should scare every business owner. That should scare every entrepreneur. And that should just scare anybody who has a heart for justice. Because I think the normal person realizes that you have these political parties, but justice should be blind. And when justice begins not to be blind, then we're all in jeopardy. I mean, if that can happen to Donald Trump, that could happen to any small business owner who sent $10 to Trump, right? Democrat, Republican, anybody. And that's what is waking up, I believe, and starting to get people reengaged to say, you know what? I may not think the guy you know, says all the best things, but by God, what's happening to him is not fair. And so, you know, we're seeing that polling is showing that over and over in black communities, in Hispanic communities. You know, there are moderate Democrats who are saying my party has run so far away from what I believe. I guess we used to call them the blue dog Democrats. My party is so far away from me now that I can't even stand with them anymore. So I think we're bringing, I think you're right. I think we need to open our tent wider and welcome those people in who can't, who don't feel like they're finding a home anywhere and tell them there's a home within our party. Last question. If someone wants to know what Lieutenant Governor Pamela Evett is doing, where you are, um, how do they do that? Is there a website? Is there a, give me kind of a grand central station for what you're up to. (laughs) I try to put everything I do out there. So I'm on Instagram. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm on Twitter, which is now X, right? I'm on Facebook. My website is Pam at Pamela Um, so I, and I, and for me, I travel around the state, Ken, I think I have the best job in government. Um, and by the way, Andre Bauer, I saw him the other day, told me to tell, tell, uh, to tell you that we're his two favorite lieutenant governors. So I told him you sing his praises all the time. He'll be the forever lieutenant governor. But I would love for people to reach out and see what I'm doing. I'm somewhere all the time. I'm talking to business. I'm finding out what we can do within government to make business better. And I'm talking to people and I'm talking to families and I'm finding out what they want. And I'm putting that out there. Uh, But it's always positive. And like you, I don't think we need to cut each other down. We are all Republicans and what's happening now and what's happening in these elections is we rip each other apart. We leave the carnage for the Democrats, and it's wrong. You know, they stand together. When, when Gavin Newsom can get on TV and tell you that Joe Biden has all of his mental faculties, that just shows you how they come together to support each other. And I wish we would all do that a little bit more. Well, explain. Well, and I appreciate your time. Once a month you join us, and we really do 
look forward to that feature. Have a good day, good weekend, and um, and we'll talk again. That's right, Ken. Thanks, and look forward to talking to you uh, in 30 days. Thank you very much. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few more. 843-661-0937. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Sam in Cross Hill. Hi, Sam. You're on. Uh, good morning, fellas. I'm actually not in Cross Hill this morning. I am very close to you guys. Uh, I'm at my beach house in Darlington, South Carolina. And I call it my beach house because it's only 75, 80 miles from the beach, and it was my father's and mother's house until they passed away. So it, now it's mine. It, it, it'll be a beach house in about 80 million years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's what they say. And it, it was beach uh, property a long time ago because they did some work when I was a child out there doing some sewer lines and doggone if they weren't uh, finding shells uh, in the in the soil. So we, we, we were once under the sea and I guess we'll return to that many, many years. But uh, anyway, you guys have done a great job hypothesizing this morning about immunity and president this and president that. But, you know, uh, I want to kind of go off in a different direction a little bit and, and give you something to think about over the weekend. You know, sometimes when you ride down the country road, go through a neighborhood, an old dog will tear after your car. And when that dog tears after my car, when I'm when it's chasing my car, I kind of look at that dog and I say, what in the world would you do if you caught this car? Because it's not going to end well for that dog, I'm, I'm quite sure, if he does catch it in a lot of cases. So my question for you guys is, is and you can, is this. Uh, I think it's assumed, it's, it's pretty uh, a fact that, that Trump's going to get the nomination, and there's a good possibility that he's going to win the presidency. And if we thought his four years first term was hell in terms of the attacks of the deep state and the cathedral, I think this next four years would be absolutely worse than that. So do you think he has the armor? Do we have the armor that put up with the attacks that will come his way once he's inaugurated. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate that. See, I tend to concentrate on what success looks like. I mean, there's no doubt there's vindication. To some degree, there's revenge. Um, you know, we beat the Democrats and the never-Trumpers. We being, you know, America firsters. But but I'm, I'm more interested, and I think the, the, the best answer he's given to anything in a long time is when he said, you know, success will be my revenge. But what is quantifiable success? I mean, what does that look like? Is it, I mean, what, I mean, if, if you are an America firster, what sort of policy initiatives or, or political opinions do you want to see as a matter of priority? That, that's, I keep going there. I mean, I, I, if the election were this coming Tuesday, I think Trump wins Nevada, Arizona, Michigan, and Georgia, and is elected president of the United States. I'm not confident in Wisconsin. I'm not confident obviously in Pennsylvania, I'm not as so confident in Arizona, Nevada, and, and Michigan, but I'm more confident there than I am uh, some of the other places. So, so Trump wins. I mean, that's vindication, right? I mean, there's some sort of a, um, you, you kind of look, okay, see there? We did it without you. I mean, you 10% or 12 or 15 or whatever that number is, Republicans, we did it without you. We went and found some blue dog Democrats, some low propensity, non-college educated white voters in some of these places, and we, but but that can't be the end. I mean, we don't build a statue for that moment in time. What are the policy initiatives? I mean, the first thing Trump will tell you is fix all these things. Biden has goofed up. I mean, get a more secure border. Um, you know, uh, empower some of these states to do certain things uh, about election laws and whatnot. Um, is the is is it worth considering? 
federalizing some of the election. I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking about that. I've read a lot about it. I mean, there, there are a lot of opinions out there, scholarly and non, about federalizing elections. Um, and I'm talking about unsupervised mail-in ballots. You know, what should be the federal government's... I mean, is the presidency a federal election? I mean, I know I know the Constitution says states are to administer the election. I get states' rights. I get the Tenth Amendment. I mean, I, I, I've read a lot about it. I understand it to some degree. There have been a lot of court cases based on... Okay, the the Supreme Court is ruling whether a state can take a candidate off the ballot or not. Um, Doesn't that kind of suggest to some degree we're willing to let the federal government play a a role or a a hand or have a hand? And it's spoken to in the U.S. Constitution. It it is. So are we, should we as a, a lot of you believe, because I've heard you tell me this on and off the air, a lot of you believe that free and fair elections are more important than the border, more important than the debt, more important than taxes, more important than education, more important than infrastructure spending. Many of you have said, if we can't have fair and free elections, why does anything else matter? So if Trump wins, should we institute some sort of federal law that says this is the way we vote? And if states don't, abide by the way we say to vote, they don't get funding. I mean, that, that's the lever the federal government can pull. I mean, if, if the states don't play ball, they just don't get funding. And if the state wants to go off and do their, and have, you know, 100 days of voting and, you know, uh, doesn't have to have witnesses and, you know, they, they can decide today this person's in charge of the election, tomorrow that person's in charge of the election. I mean, if, if voting integrity and free and fair elections is the, the genuine concern, then, then how to address it? Well, I mean, Biden's not going to address it. And, and I love these people that say, you know, the election was fair and free. To some degree, all elections are fair and free. To some degree, they're all unfair to some level. We just don't know how much. That's why I said last night, a lady comes up to me after I spoke at the Dillon County Republican Party, and she said, you said you don't believe the election was stolen. I said, I've never said the election was stolen. That's not what I, I didn't say I don't, I mean, I, you know, what I believe and what I say are two different things on that. I mean, I, you know, because I don't want to, I mean, do, do I have certain beliefs that I don't have proof of. And, and, and I said earlier, Rev, I have a right to say whatever I choose to say other than yelling fire to theater. My credibility is based on my right to say what I want to say in conjunction with my responsibility to be somewhat accurate. Does that make sense? I mean, I could make up things every day over the, over the airwaves, but at some point in time, people are going to say, God, I don't know what he's talking about. He says things that just aren't true. So, so, so along with the right to say whatever I choose to say, I mean, there, there's a, there, to me, I mean, maybe others feel different, but I feel I have a responsibility that if somebody comes up to me and says, Hey man, you said these things, defend that opinion. I can normally do it. I mean, I can almost always do it. On the few occasions I can, I'm pretty good at BS. Um, but the reason that I don't say the election was stolen is I can't analytically prove that. I mean, I just can't. I mean, it's impossible. How many people voted for Joe Biden that weren't legitimate? Give me a number, Rev. You can't. You can't. I mean, there's no way to give that number. So if I say the election was stolen and somebody says, how do you know? 
how do you know the election was stolen? And then I fumble around and say, well, I mean, you know, this happened in Racine County, Wisconsin, and we know how they are in Detroit, and we know what happened in, in Atlanta. Do you? You know or you suspect? And I don't want to suspect a lot. I know there were statistical anomalies. I know that in the precincts that Zuckerberg spent enormous amounts of money, we had unbelievable high turns out, turnouts. I, mean, that, that, I know that to be true. But how many of those, and then were there enough to turn the outcome of an election? I don't know that. I'd love to say I do. I mean, as a Trump supporter, I'd love to say that the election was stolen, and I can prove it. But if I said today the election was stolen, and somebody said prove it, I couldn't. I mean, I can prove the statistical anomalies. I can prove that laws were changed that shouldn't be changed. I can prove that certain states were in violation of their constitution. I mean, I can prove that, but I can't prove the election was stolen. But for us who are concerned about the post-COVID way of voting, should election interference or election integrity be top of the list? Because you've told me, not you personally, Reb, but a lot of you listening have told me that I'm more concerned about election integrity than I am anything. I mean, I'm more concerned. You know how the things are doing? You know how they're going? You know what happens? Eh, no, I don't. I mean, I suspect, but I don't know. But but if, if, if $34 trillion of debt is important, if the southern border is important, is it more important than free and fair elections? And if Trump gets elected in November, should he, in January, kind of intervene in some of the affairs of statewide elections? And, and I think we've, we've kind of agreed to that. The Democrats kind of agreed by certain states, blue states, taking Trump off the ballot, and everybody kind of saying, well, let's wait and see what the Supreme Court says. So if Trump were to say, hey, I know the states are to be in charge of their said in several elections, but I'm not sure Republicans are getting a fair shake, and I want to institute radical election reform. And he, and he does certain things in the executive capacity of president and certain states challenge it. I mean, we know where we end up. Where? At the United States Supreme Court. Does the executive power of the president allow him to do? I mean, I, I would imagine he'll appoint a federal election commissioner, right? I mean, ahead of that. I mean, does that empower Trump to be able? I mean, we know when presidents get appointed or elected, they appoint an EPA director. I mean, I can tell you firsthand, in the truck body manufacturing business, it was more expensive to build truck beds under Obama than it was Bush or Clinton, for that matter, because he appointed a pretty aggressive and, and zealous EPA director, and the EPA director changed the, the percentage of raw. Now let me get this right. You ready? Raw particulate emissions. Mm. Building truck beds, you hardly ever bump into raw particulate <laughs> emissions, but in our paint shop, the filtering system was not up to snuff. I mean, it was good for the Clinton administration, good for the Bush administration. The Obama administration had a more aggressive take on, on the climate. Next thing you know, a business that manufactures truck bed in a town with no stoplight has to invest $150,000 on a more thorough way of not discharging raw particulates into the atmosphere. Why? Because the government said we did. I mean, that wasn't voted on by Congress. I mean, that was an executive order endorsed by an EPA director. So does the Trump administration, if elected in November, have the ability to implement certain things about voting that could 
Make it more likely that Republicans compete in Pennsylvania. Make it more likely. I mean, if you, and, and I think you got to be a bit naive to not believe there are shenanigans. I mean, there's always going to be shenanigans. Nixon and Kennedy and LBJ. I mean, this is not some newfound phenomenon. Dr. Bolt is explaining the early American presidencies. I mean, they, they would kind of congratulate one another. Fist bump. Oh, nice job. You got me on that one. I never thought you could get that many votes out of there, but you some way, somehow did. And it was kind of a tip of the hat. You know, the, 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 the crazy art of American politics on full display. Um, I mean, that, I, I just think you got to consider that. And, and to, to, to the point of, of, you know, is it, is it good enough to win? To me, it's not. I mean, if you win, it's almost like winning a, a national championship in some sport and putting the trophy in your closet and telling the media to never make mention of it. I think when you win, you've got to be able to pull the levers of government. I mean, back to J.D. Vance. I mean, Vance believes that historically Republicans have said, we're for limited government. I mean, you know how those Democrats are, so we're going to limit government. And Vance believes, in essence, and I think Josh kind of likes this, I mean, Vance believes we need to weaponize government to our advantage. Yes. I mean, that's kind of what he says. I mean, J.D. Vance makes no bones about it. I mean, if the other side, when given an opportunity to weaponize government, does it to get their wishes and their worldview implemented, why wouldn't you do the same? And and he's kind of, he and Rand Paul would be two of the Republicans in the Senate. Now, you got a hundred House members <laughs> in the Freedom Caucus that are on board. I mean, they're chomping at the bit to do some of these things. But yeah. the Senate, you know, the more serious, the more, you know, diligent. The slow more, moving, uh, as we very, talk Very about. slow moving and methodical, uh, cerebral, uh, a lot of words that you can uh, do nothing. I mean, that would be the better, <laughs> the better to do nothing, um, Senate. So, you know, I, I just think we've got to really consider once Trump wins, what do we want to do? I mean, what is realistic? Remember the, uh, the American moment? I mean, we haven't talked about that in a while. That is the training that is going on as we speak of America first surrogates and staffers and underlings. And I think Trump learned a hard lesson when he got there. I think Trump sat behind his desk and say, okay, this is kind of like Trump enterprise. And any big call that's going to be made comes across my desk. And I think he learned, he learned over time, nothing comes across my desk. I mean, everything is done by these agencies and these agency heads, and they're so entrenched and they're so manipulative in how they do their job. And the intent was to do things and not let the president know about it. And they succeeded. So I'm hopeful that when Trump sits behind that resolute desk in January of 2025, there's a game plan that has already been thought through, and there's about 20,000 government workers who pack their bags and leave Washington, and another 20,000 government workers who show up in Washington, true believing in the America First political movement and eventual ideology. Take a break. Back in a few. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. We done about made this Friday, hadn't we, Josh? Just about. Joshua makes us think early in the morning. <laughs> we're going to kill the mom and child, or we're going to wait on an American to get killed. That's kind of a dark scenario. Oh, my. Bad answers all around. Yeah. I'm glad it's Friday. I don't know if I could deal with that on a Monday morning. Josh, they go jump out in front of a car going down Walker <laughs> Swinton Road. Josh Swinton has Road. a knack for proposing these absurd you know, dilemmas to consider. Do you not, Josh? 
I mean, you've kind of done that. I propose solutions to them. <laughs> there you, there know, you go. The, the solutions will make me more nervous than, than some of the hypotheticals. How you know? Here it is. He offers the hypothetical with a lot of serious thought. His answers appear to me not require a lot of serious thought. That they're very off the cuff. That's funny. And I think they're sincere. That's what makes me real mm-hmm. nervous about how easy it is for Josh to answer. So some of the uh, psychoanalysis-oriented questions. Only we, because I've thought about these things before. I'm sure you have. <laughs> That's even more alarming. In, in these off-air discussions, you have to be careful if he starts something with, would you rather, and then he goes off. Some, Here's some advice to Josh. You ready? There's a Seinfeld marathon on TV land about twice a week. Indulge yourself. Okay. There you go. An absurdity. <laughs> Let's go to the vault. Absurd scenarios. Uh, Mike in Darlington. Hey, Mike, you're on. Uh, good morning. Um, please don't step out in front of the truck. I want you to stay on the radio for a little while longer, at least. Thank you, sir. Uh, but uh, I, uh, I, I really was. That was too much this morning when you opened up with that situational ethics type stuff. You know where there. Uh, you know, a situation where you have to uh, sacrifice a destroyer to save the liner, or do you keep the destroyer so you can keep the submarines off the rest of the convoy? Mm-hmm. I mean, that. Uh, either way, it's not a happy, happy answer. But you, in emergency situations, unfortunately, uh, you have to do make hard decisions like that. You have triage. Can should I? use this to keep this guy alive for just a little bit longer and use this plasma up or should I save it to try and save this guy that's uh mildly uh wounded and can get back into the fight. Uh that's those are those are hard decisions and uh you really don't want to be in a position to have to make those decisions, but you have to have some some sort of guidepost set up because they're gonna come up. Unfortunately, there's no ideal solution for many of these things, and people are going to be hurt either way. But uh, I, I don't, I don't think we can continue trying to commit suicide as a culture and a and a nation by allowing uh, unchecked invasion of the country. I mean, that's that's just, that's just uh, absolute uh, a necessity. And I, but uh, I have one other question that doesn't have anything to do with what you were talking about, or maybe it does. What happened to Jeff? Ever since he accused you of having a boat, which you thoroughly denied that you do not have, possess a boat, uh, I haven't heard from him anymore, or have I just not been listening at the right time? No, thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. Happy weekend to you. And um, we've just not heard from Jeff. It's been Jeff, a while. Yeah, it's been a while. I mean, Jeff, Jeff kind of, um, I mean, he'll hit us for multiple days in a row, and then he'll go away for a little while. Uh, the floor is open. The lines are ready. I mean, uh, you know, have at it. Uh, 843-661-0937 is the number. And, um, and the last couple or three conversations we had were fairly civil. I mean, we had a testy one prior to the last two or three, and I guess we'll have another testy one or two or three. I would love to have 10 Jeffs. And I mean that sincerely. I'd love to have multiple people every day challenging what I believe, being civil and respectful about it. But but I think it makes for better radio. I think we're all better served if we hear two people 
express themselves on different side of a political debate. I mean, I, I love that. I mean, I enjoy that. It's weird. I mean, it's kind of a bent gene because my wife says, so you like arguing? I like winning arguments. I don't like losing arguments. Um, but, but I think it, <laughs> but, I, like I, but I think political theater is more interesting when everybody getting patting one another on the back and we're kind of like, well, I mean, I hear you, man, but I kind of agree. I kind of think something different than, than you think I got to be careful Monday when I speak to the Rotarians, cause they're not asking me to come in and pat Republicans on the back and tell us how great our worldview is and how everybody should be one of us. Um, I mean, it's going to be political, but it certainly won't be, won't be partisan. And I've always tried to be respectful of the group that invites me to say a few words. I don't want to insult. I don't have any intent to insult anybody. And some of these civic groups like to try to be apolitical. I get it. I understand it. Uh, I've, I've gone into enemy territory a time or two. I mean, I know I have. I've spoken to the Junior League and the Librarian Association. I'm no, I, I know they're not very fond of my opinions at the Junior League or the Librarians Association. <laughs> um, sitting on the tailgate at a, at a ball game, a tailgate. I mean, I, you know, I know I'm amongst kindred spirits and people who feel very similar uh, to the way I feel about certain things. Been kind of a, an interesting week. Uh, from what I read, there's going to be some rain along the coast this weekend. I don't like that, but it's March. Maybe we get some good weather when it warms up and we can enjoy, along with the rest of Michigan and Ohio, our, our South Carolina coastline. <laughs> Michigan, Ohio, New Jersey, we can enjoy our, our South Carolina watch, coastline. Watch some college baseball. Yeah, watch a little. That's right. I mean, I think we're broadcasting the games on, on our sister station. In, in the Florence area on 96.3 ESPN Radio, you can hear the series from the Gamecock Radio Network. You'll hear a series South Carolina versus Clemson game tonight and then tomorrow afternoon and Sunday afternoon. Let's do some trivia, Josh. Are you ready? Instead of playing out just these dreaded hypotheticals, let's do a little trivia sponsored by our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. First correct answer wins a six-pack of Pepsi product. couple of takes Mondays to make Friday's T-shirt. Uh, Mitch McConnell has served in the U.S. Senate 40 years. He's number 13 in all-time service served, I guess. One former senator served over 50 years. Who was it? One senator had over 50-year length of service in the United States Senate. Who was that senator? 843-661-0937. First answer wins a six-pack of Pepsi product couple of takes Mondays to make Friday's T-shirts. Hi, you're on the air. What's your guess? Strom Thurmond? Nope, not Strom. 47 years, Hmm. five months, eight days for Strom. That was my guess. Hi, you're on the air. What's your guess? Uh, Strom Thurmond. Nope, Strom. 47 years, five months, eight days. Hi, you're on. What's your guess? Carl Haith. Say again? Carl Haith. Nope. 843-661- 0937. Carl Hayden, 41 years, 10 months. Hi, you're on the air. What's your guess? Uh, I'm going to say Strom Thurmond. Nope. Strom, 47 years. That'd be five months and eight days. Good guess. Hi, you're on. What's your guess? Uh, Robert Bird. Robert Bird of West Virginia, 51 years, five months, 26 days, longest serving senator in the history of the United States. Who is this? Where are you calling from? Gary from Hartsville. Gary, sit tight. We'll get you back to Josh. He'll depress you while he gets your information with some <laughs> dreaded hypothetical. Anyway, Robert Bird, 51 years, five months, 26 days. We'll be back in a couple of days. Enjoy your weekend.